Hello, and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and every episode I bring on a guest to talk about a video game that made an impact on their life. I have a very exciting guest today. He is a musician, orchestrator, and a composer who has worked in TV, theater, video games, and created this podcast theme song. It's Mike Petri. Mike, how are you doing Hello. today? Hello. Good, good. Thanks for having me on, man. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> Glad to be here. Happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on as a guest. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, it's exciting to work with you. Once again, you compose this show's wonderful theme song. I'm excited to actually talk to you about a video game at length. Before we get into that, though, I do want yeah. people who don't have the pleasure of knowing you, you know, I want you to introduce yourself to them. What do you do and what do you like? Well, yeah, like you said, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm all those things, <laughs> musician, composer, orchestrator. Most recently, I was um, a uh, Broadway musician in the show called Parade on Broadway. And before that, I was uh, doing the same thing in a show called Strange Loop last year. So I've been very lucky to have two Broadway shows in a row where I was playing keyboard and guitar and actually banjo most recently <laughs> in those pits. Um, and that's sort of been my my very good day job for the past uh, year and a half. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also a composer. Um, you know, I've, I've written some musical theater things throughout the years. I've, uh, I've written music for video games. Um, and I've also worked as an orchestrator for a lot of like children's like cartoons and stuff that uh, maybe your listeners have heard of, but I'm not sure how much detail I'm allowed to go <laughs> on or to go into with the strike. It's all on my website if you, if you need to know the deets about that. Right. Yeah. I don't want to be in violation of any uh, strike rules as has come up before previous guests on the show because people work in or around the industry. Solidarity, yeah. of course. Uh, we, we've covered this before. Of course. Uh, sorry, of continue. Course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in either of those, <laughs> those uh, unions. But yeah, I, uh, I want to play it safe. I want to be respectful and yeah, respectful of the strike. Um, but uh, your question, what do I like? I mean, obviously, I, I like Final Fantasies. That's why I'm here. I like video game music. And, uh, you know, video game wise, I like, you know, indies and things that rise, you know, indies that kind of rise to the surface. Like so many adults, I wish I had more time to play video games. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of like grabbing an hour or two here, here and there. But uh, I like playing music. I like cooking. Cooking. I'm, I'm, you a, like to I'm cook. a jack of all trades. What can I say? Um, what do I like to cook? Jeez. I, um, <laughs> It sounds like cheating, but I really like like meal kit deliveries like systems like uh, HelloFresh and Blue Apron. Who do not sponsor this podcast. <laughs> they do not. Someday, though, they might. But um, they're so helpful to learn how to cook that I, I recommend them to anyone just to sort of like just to get the basics of cooking. So I really just like kind of cooking basic stuff, but just trying to do a really good job of it. Sure. Yeah. You know, before we talk about video games, you are a musician. Obviously, we don't have to talk about your work in detail, but I do kind of want to know from you directly as a musician, uh, who do you credit as your inspirations? What do you draw from, from sonically when you are playing music or writing music? I mean, it's really hard for me to escape the influence of uh, Nuobu Umatsu just because, like, I, you know, I started playing Final Fantasies when I was very little and that music really inspired me to like learn how to play piano and how to write music. So definitely his work throughout, you know, his career um, in Koji Kondo, of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, on the other side of things, like you know, as a musical theater writer, like Stephen Sondheim, of course, was a huge inspiration when I was younger. Unfortunately, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber was also a, a big influence for me. 
but and aside from that i also like used to play like punk rock when i was younger so like kind of like alt 90s rock and punk rock was is still like kind of part of my my whole thing a little bit like bands like bad religion and and propaganda and you know the some of the some of the the classics like the hit like beethoven and and all those guys beethoven and propaganda yeah (laughs) propaganda i I don't know i've only seen it written You know, I I said propaganda my whole life, and then I started listening to podcasts about them in which they said propaganda, and I was like, okay, well, they're. I think that's the Canadian pronunciation. Well, you know, famously, nobody's ever mispronounced anything on a podcast before. <laughs> none, none, no clubs right. I've ever said out loud are permanently immortalized. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's not even Japanese names that I, I flub so much. I mean, I do sometimes occasionally, but the main things is like when I cover right. like French Canadian names or something, I'm like, I hope I said this. Oh, you. sure. I mean, I'm interested. To see, I feel like Final Fantasy games, like especially have like, do people say Tifa? Do they say Tifa? Do they say Yuffie? Do they say Yuffie? Like every name is like open for interpretation. Final Fantasy VIII, it was like, is this Cypher or Cypher? And as a Kiefer, I had to like oh. opine a little bit. Yeah, I think I and, say Cypher. I, I say cipher too. I'm a hypocrite. It's not. spelled exactly the same except with a K. <laughs> right. I understand why people say my name wrong when they first meet me. Yeah, they're they're big Final Fantasy VIII fans. Yeah. Well, we're leaning into the Final Fantasy talk, so I guess we have to lean into video games as a whole now. As you know, as a listener of the show, no community likes to gatekeep more than the gamers. So we do have to check your gaming credentials, Mr. Mike. Uh let's talk a bit about your gaming history, who or what got you into it, your relationship with it throughout the years. What is Mike Petrie's portrait of a gamer? Well, I, you know, actually grew up with video games. So I was born in the early 80s. So I just kind of remember us like having an Atari when I was little and it kind of being like this this family activity when I was really little, like oh we're going to play Centipede or Missile Command. Mm-hmm. And you know when I was I think like first grade or kindergarten was around the time that the NES was coming out. And I, I saw it at a friend's house and, you know, saw Super Mario Brothers. And I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So can we get one of these for Christmas? So, you know, then I grew up with the NES and, through, you know, then the Super Nintendo all the way, you know, till today. I've kind of had every PlayStation since then, mm-hmm. most uh, Nintendo systems. And like briefly, like I don't really have a gaming PC now, but in, in the 90s, I sort of did, which meant I could just play Doom and uh, Wolfenstein 3D. Sure. But now I, I also have a Steam Deck. So that has kind of been my re-entry into non-console games or like older games, too, that I may have missed. What do you play on your Steam Deck? <laughs> Recently, I've been playing Final Fantasy VII, um, but yeah. I've also been playing uh, Dave the Diver. You know, I, I feel like it's it's really good for... Some of these indies that maybe two or three years ago I would have said, oh, the Switch is perfect for, but, you know, run a little better on the Steam Deck. Um, so it's it's been a really good system for that. You know, I've been playing Boulder Skate on more recently, and it doesn't look great there, but it's still like it's nice to have a way to play it. I'm hoping that I'll, I'll sort of stumble into like a better, you know, more optimized <laughs> settings for it. But it's still like the gameplay outweighs it. I'm not playing for the graphics, really. Speaking of, uh, you know, video game consoles, whether it's a Steam Deck, a Switch, uh, what is your favorite console overall? I mean, I feel like the, my emotional answer to that is probably the Super Nintendo. Um, it was just it came out at a perfect time for me. I guess I was like 10 or 11 when it came out. And so I just really remember anticipating it uh, and getting it as a Christmas gift. And that was just very it was a very exciting Christmas morning to like 
try and plug it in myself and not being able to do it. And my dad was able to help. And then, okay, now I can play Super Mario Brother or Super Mario World and see those sweet mode seven graphics <laughs> on pilot wings. It was a big technical jump from the NES for sure. But I also feel like it was such a big leap, like with game design. You know, that's where we, we get like Super Metroid and the, the Final Fantasies of four, five, and six. So that it kind of feels like there's more consideration of how to make a good game being being taken. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, I understand. I don't know. Super Metroid is a lot more fun than the original Metroid. Yeah. No. I mean, like with me, like I, I've tried playing uh, all the original Metroids, and Super Metroid is far and away the better game. Like if people like the original Metroid. I've never heard anybody say like, oh, my favorite Metroid is the original Metroid. I definitely you, you respect it because it's like the yeah. foundation, the same way you respect a lot of the early NES games, but it isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. uh, the full, like, playable experience that readable in the same way. And, like, Super Metroid Mm -hmm. is still pretty hard by the standard of, like, this is an older video game and this isn't really something that we expected every single person in the world to play. But it is, like, significantly easier to get into and it is a lot more in line Mm -hmm. with modern gaming convention than the stuff on the NES. For sure. And with, like, Metroid Zero Mission on GBA, it's like, here's what... We, we kind of thought maybe the original Metroid should have been, and now we know how to do it better. Yeah, no, the, the benefit of hindsight and uh, being able to go back to something. <laughs> yeah, and for sure. Also, like, sort of underline the inherent appeal of, like, you know, we made this first game. Uh, there's still some good stuff in there, and we'd like for people to experience it in a different way. I think that's a good, good right. compromise. Yeah, I just mean, I, like, I remember playing Metroid as a kid, like, on the NES, and it was just, it felt so revolutionary that you could go left as well as right. So, like, you know, just to put it in historical context, is like these things all just kind of felt very new as they came out. Yeah, I mean, like, this is definitely going to be an episode where we talk about historical context a lot. So it's going to. Uh, yeah, like, for sure. It certainly factors into the legacy of Final Fantasy VII. You know, you've talked about growing up with the Super Nintendo and the NES. Were you somebody who was playing uh, these RPGs in real time as they were coming out? Or did you sort of come into uh, this series later? No, I, I I played Final Fantasy one on NES when I was like, you know, nine or 10 or whatever. And, you know, that was sort of my gateway. I don't know if I played that or Dragon Warrior, now known as Dragon Quest, which of those I played first. Um, but I definitely like played those like, yeah, basically in real time and like anticipated Final Fantasy, quote unquote, two <laughs> coming out for Super Nintendo. Yeah. And kind of thinking that maybe I was done with these games and then three came out and it's like oh no i'm not done with this at all this is amazing oh yeah so yeah i i do feel kind of lucky in that regard of kind of being growing up in the era where i got to experience these things for the first time as they were happening no for sure because i mean like luckily i've lucked into guests who who did grow up with the nes SNES era and were playing these rpgs in real time uh it, it comes up pretty often but mm-hmm. in terms of like actual market appeal uh you know japanese rpgs weren't remotely as popular as they are now wasn't like a a big big item if you look like the best-selling games in north america you're not going to see an rpg in like that in that top five but they've they've certainly definitely felt niche back then yeah they weren't kirby (laughs) and it's weird because like i think we forget that like video games used to cost like way more in some way like i remember the like the sticker price on final fantasy three a six on on super nintendo was like eighty dollars in like 1993 or four money Mm -hmm. so like it did feel like there's there's a premium on these games because they're long or because they're less popular it felt like 
oh, if you want these, you kind of have to, it's, it's an investment. Right. Because like it is using so much storage capacity and not to mention like a battery to save onto the cartridge. And that True. was a big thing that like really sank uh, Earthbound when it came out is like, this is a very esoteric game. The advertising makes no sense. Mm. It's aesthetically not pleasing. <laughs> and on top of all that, it cost 80 goddamn dollars in 1995 right. money. <laughs> Bill Clinton, what did you do? I mean, that's probably like around like $130 or something today. It's just kind of hard to imagine. Yeah, but I think we all balked when like the premium PS5 games went from like 60 to $70 two years ago. But it's just like, <laughs> they used to cost twice that much like with inflation. Yeah. And I think yeah, and like a lot of people hear that and they don't really necessarily know why. And it's because we switched to discs. Discs are significantly cheaper to mass produce and store and they're more efficient in storage too. And actually with the actual cost per item software dramatically dropped when uh, we moved to discs yeah. as like the more standard item. Yeah. Yeah. And I still have many of them. <laughs> I, I actually... I was going to save this review till later, but I do have my like original like uh, PS1 uh, discs of Final Fantasy VII with me. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> In a CD sleeve, uh, a book of CD sleeves, which is, you know, a very late 90s artifact as well. <laughs> no, I have a CD sleeve for weirdly PlayStation 3 games because I don't know what happened, but like I was storing. <laughs> There's a point in my life where I was like, I like keeping the box, but for some reason I have this, this yeah. sleeve left over from the nineties from like a, from like an older brother or like my mom or something. And I was like, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to keep them in the sleeves anyway. And now like after some moves, there's a couple of like PlayStation three actual boxes I'm missing, but I do still have the discs. So mm -hmm. it's just, yeah. you know, different generation, which is more uncanny when I'm pulling out like, Oh, let me go play uh, the ratchet and clank trilogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you have the, the final fantasy games on your disc to this day. Clearly it means a lot to you. If you, preserved it in such a 90s fashion <laughs> what is your relationship with the with the final fantasy series overall what are your favorite games what are some ones that you don't care for any hot takes that you have Let, let's hear it uh yeah my i had i played my relationship with the series was you know from the ground up like playing the original final fantasy on nes even though it's basically unplayable now um it's so hard and so time consuming but uh yeah, I remember when Final Fantasy IV came out, the, the US version, it was really, I was highly anticipating it because I'd seen it in the Nintendo Power and it looked so amazing, you know, on this new hardware. And I was excited to hear what the music would sound like. I think we like ended up renting it. We couldn't, like my parents couldn't find it. So we were able to rent it at a, like a Mr. Video or whatever it was called. It, my my very uh, understanding parents somehow let me like keep the game until I beat it and not you know take it back after the two days where it was due. Wow. So at a at, a, at two dollars a day they literally let me keep that game until I beat it. And then you know a couple months later, whenever uh, the next holiday or my birthday rolled around, like I still like hey can we get this game because I would like to keep playing it. <laughs> Um, and I think I might actually still have that cartridge somewhere. I might have my like original Final Fantasy 2 slash 4 cartridge. Yeah. To what is now known as 4, uh, because we'll get into it. Um, 4 was the first uh, yeah. Final Fantasy <laughs> game that I played. I played the DS version. Uh, oh, cool. So diff completely different version. One that wasn't nerfed for uh, oh, like US audiences like the original was. So yeah, no, the, the 4 yeah. uh, remake is actually incredible. And on top of it being fully 3D, 
uh, when you play it and the cutscenes being fully voiced and everything like that. It has like this incredible, incredibly animated intro that looks as good as anything that you would see yeah. in like a modern console fan Final Fantasy. And it like that blew me away looking at that on my tiny little DS screen. It's like you went yeah. a little you went a little too hard on this considering uh, the the vessel through which I'm experiencing it. I mean, I feel like nobody went harder than like Squaresoft in like the 90s, early 2000s with like those FMV sequences. Starting with Final Fantasy VII, like and eight especially has some really uh, wild ones. But yeah, I like the DS version because I feel like it kind of like gives you some more like backstory. There's like a lot more about like Golbez and Cecil as kids, which is kind of weird, but also interesting. It kind of felt like caviar. It kind of felt like, oh, I played the original game a lot. So here's a little extra for me to enjoy. Remakes can be interesting because obviously you can't like do a one for one if you are planning to like fully modernize a video game like they did with Final Fantasy four, because even playing Final Fantasy seven, there's so much story stuff that is like, I guess you sort of fill in the blanks or like it's inferred, but it's never directly communicated. But yeah. that also leaves a lot of room for speculation. Which and stuff is why you can I just guess, miss. Yeah. So like being able to like add more text to make it feel more like an epic story in like the way that people in the nineties remember. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting. And in, in my you know, personal opinion, a strong execution of it in uh, the, the DS remake. Yeah. I think that's also like, if someone asked me today, like who's never played with Final Fantasy, like where to start, I would definitely recommend that one because it is like pretty short. It's got the best of Final Fantasy worlds where it's like there's swords and magic, but then also like a tower full of robots. Yeah, it is a very like it has all sorts of stuff in it. It has the airships. It has like the weird monsters. It has the active time battle system that people associate with the Final Fantasy series moving forward. So a lot of like the stuff is established. You've got a Sid. You've got Chocobos. Exactly. You've got crystals. <laughs> you got crystals. Uh, and <laughs> on top of all that, like, I mean, I mean, obviously the music is fantastic and it's, a, it's approachable because, I mean, like so many other Final Fantasy games have a gimmick to it or like a specific game specific thing that you have to like wrap your mind around. And in this, I think it's the active time battle system was like the thing that they were introducing for this one. So instead, like you don't have to worry about like class assignments and anything like that. You get like 12 party members true, to choose true. from. So if you want to try different things, you just put a different person in your party instead. And that's like the, the thing you're playing with. So I think it is at least like a good like get your bearings game at the very least. Right. And it's funny that I, I guess Square thought that they were teaching us how to play like RPGs with Mystic Quest. <laughs> but uh <laughs> I think this game does a better job and is also a much better game. I'm trying to think what other, just to go back to the question, I'm trying to think if there are any of the Final Fantasy, Final Fantasies I don't like or any gaps I have. I mean, I honestly, I kind of fell off around 10. Like I, you know, I played 10 in college, but it kind of didn't grab me the same way as like seven, eight and nine did. I've never played any of the MMO versions, even though I just hear amazing things about 14. I just kind of know myself too well. That's like, would not be healthy for me <laughs> sure, to get same. into a very good MMO. And uh, 13, I played a little bit of and I got sick of. And But who knows? I could I could see myself going back there, trying it out. Hmm. Same with 12. Like, Yeah. With the 13, I think it's a question of like if they'll ever let you back in because that's one of the few Final Fantasy games they haven't re-released in some form since the PlayStation 3. Oh, that's right. Well, I mean, I, I still have my PS3 disc somewhere. <laughs> so I could uh dig that out and make make it work and then and just uh to get all the way to the timeline like same with 15 like you know i played i don't know 10 hours of it and just kind of fell off like it just kind of wasn't 
clicking for me and the I missed the turn-based combat and it was just kind of a lot of driving around. But still, like all these games that I kind of like met on, I still like to some extent and still keep telling myself <laughs> in the darkness of the night that I will return to them someday. Yeah. And the other thing is like if one of them doesn't work for you or if a couple of them don't work for you, that's totally fine. There's still at least a dozen or something else for you to go back to. If you prefer like an MMO kind of thing, you have two options to choose from because Eleven is still online to this day, magically. And if you just want like, here's a, a battle system you've never goddamn seen before and probably never goddamn will again, play Final Fantasy Twelve. If you want something more, right. yeah, more linear, you can try for 13. Like 13 is definitely trying to do something interestingly commercial, but like in a way that like didn't necessarily resonate with the, the, the Final Fantasy incumbent crowd it's there's so many different flavors to it and and for a lot of people like oh i replayed this one is a is a big thing where it's like knowing the beats and where they go and gaining a greater appreciation for it tends to be a thing i hear especially for uh the later final fantasy entries like 12 and 13 and yeah. uh 15 to some extent uh, obviously 16 is freshly born so we will see what the what the prevailing opinion of that comes to be over the years it's not like the same thing as like the Zelda cycle where, uh, you know, it's kind of like last game better. This game sucks until the end of time. But uh, <laughs> there is something with like the, the Final Fantasy things where like either the backlash comes later or the backlash starts and people just end up bringing appraising it a couple entries later just because like people go back and revisit it for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Skyward Sword apologist. I like that game when it came out and I still like it. <laughs> the Final Fantasy 13 of Zelda games. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Although it is sort of, it's almost like a, a precursor to, to Breath of the Wild in a way. It kind of feels the same. It feels like it's battling up against itself as like a game in between the two styles of Zelda games. Mm -hmm. It is like uh, the scene in Spider-Man uh, Breath of the Wild where like uh, the Green Goblin like <laughs> pushes a scientist out from the glass and he's like back to formula. It's like people didn't respond super well to the linear <laughs> stuff, guys. We got it. What did we do in the original Zelda game? Let's just do original Zelda all over again in a new, in a new medium. Right. Let's take six years to do it. And God damn it. If they didn't do it and then iterate on it <laughs> right. again in a fantastic way. Twice. I would say they, they, they goddamn did it. Yeah. And then people are like, it doesn't have a hook shot. It's not my Zelda. And like, okay, man. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I miss a hook. I missed a hook shot too, guys. I missed a hook shot too. But let's, let's, let's <laughs> That's be funny Cause uh, my, my fiance and I do talk about that a lot. We're like, we love this these new Zelda games definitely miss a hook shot. <laughs> yeah, I have, I'm flying on a hover bike. I'm basically breaking the rules of the game in a way that like they accommodated for, but man, I just want to like point my hook shot at a random tree and then fly towards it. That'd be great. I mean, with, with a send, as long as it's like a 90 degree angle, you can think you are the hook shot. Your body is the hook shot. That's a very Zen and way of thinking. You also it. have the, the joy of, being sucked through the the material <laughs> yeah <laughs> veering off of a zelda talk here uh so <laughs> you talked about uh, nobuo uematsu being like a big sonic inspiration for you uh, as a musician uh what final fantasy game do you think has the best music oh that's a great question i um i think like seven is is my obvious pick just i i just love that music so much i spent time in college like dissecting it I, I was like downloading like midi files just to try and like parse them and to see how they were orchestrated and learn like what the chord changes were because they were so interesting to me but um it, it's no secret that like on the playstation one it didn't sound great it's like 
I think it's the most comp- compositionally strong Final Fantasy, but uh, maybe one of the weaker like implementations. You know, I mean, there are some parts that I think sound great and some parts that just maybe don't because I think he, uh, Uematsu was sort of like, my understanding is that he was like, okay, this is a new hardware. I don't want to do anything too tricky yet. I don't want to screw it up and, you know, paint myself in a corner. So he just kind of used like, general MIDI sounds that like were kind of baked into the the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And then starting with Final Fantasy VIII kind of used like more of his own collected samples. I'm sort of, I might have some of those details wrong, but mm-hmm. you, you can definitely say that like you listen to Final Fantasy VIII and hear like, oh, there's kind of like a broader sonic palette going on here. Oh, for sure. I agree. I mean, like with uh, Final Fantasy VIII, like I think of the games I played so far, I might be confusing myself saying this because i love seven more as a game i still love final fantasy 8 i love mm-hmm. final fantasy 8 a lot i've covered it on the show but i do think it's like uamatsu's best stuff that i've heard is in that game like i think about the town music and how distinct they all are and the battle two different yeah enemy battle themes in there that both go profoundly hard like it is definitely like right. a fisherman's a horizon a comfort there's you can feel the him getting more comfortable with the uh ps1 uh sound chip same with the, uh, I think Final Fantasy VI is is what I thought of as like maybe the one of the best like executions of of the music because like the score is very well written, but it sounds like he has like just mastered the the Super Nintendo um, or Super Famicom like sound chips and like using those samples because it just feels so warm and and rich. Yeah, I think that's something that we've lost in like the something we've kind of lost or take for granted now that since the ps2 we've been able to handle more traditional orchestral music yeah music is now as it's written instead of like convert it into uh something that is limited because of the 8-bit 16-bit uh the midi era of the play, uh, playstation and nintendo 64 it's more just about like compression until until a certain point and you can you, you hear the intentionality of it and i think that is like it, 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 like the, the rapid evolution of things over like 15 years and having to learn hardware three different times over the course of 15 years, you can see mm-hmm. even somebody who is like a goddamn master like Uematsu, like he, he made it work, but you can definitely like mm-hmm. feel like him having to learn this thing like three across like three or four different games across three <laughs> sure. and four different gen- generations. Like, okay, what can I do now? Right, right, right. Yeah, it's funny like how limitations can, can fuel creativity because I often think about like you know there are plenty of breakdowns about the original mario theme and like how the the nintendo only i always forgive it's three or four but like yeah i think it's just three like channels for pitches so if you just look at how it's written it's like similar to like i don't know like a like a bach fugue or something how it's just very every note is like in a very specific spot to like fill it out and make it feel so much bigger than it is and it's kind of like you know he's forced to kind of like work with these technical limitations to like do something great yeah no i mean like i think about the game boy and the pokemon mm, games yeah. which i i'm still blown away by the soundtracks for red and blue and gold and silver because if you like really sit down and like put both headphones in your ear every single like space that can be filled sonically is being filled in those are really complex compositions yeah. for something that can only make uh, rudimentary beeps and boops because this is basically a glorified calculator <laughs> of a handheld 
like it, you're watching these things be rendered in black and white and then you're hearing some like very very sonically rich songs and it's like i'm still blown away by it. every time i go back to it i'm like you you can, you can hear what this is supposed to sound like it's very legible beeps and boops mm-hmm. and when they convert it into like the more um like in the anime when they like adapt those songs or like in the uh mm-hmm. later games when they adapt those songs it it, it sounds you, you can immediately recognize it. it it's not something you have to like tune yourself to totally have you heard of a podcast called Twenty Thousand hertz no i haven't the the dude kind of like talks about it's about sound design in our everyday lives and so there's an episode that's about like the evolution of the zelda theme and so he, he just talks a lot about the the technical limitations of that and like how it was created and how it's evolved throughout the years it was just really like maybe a month ago that episode came out so it's pretty easy to find it's really interesting mm-hmm. yeah i'll have to listen to this podcast because i am very interested in like the arc of things. There's a great, uh, you know, when Brian Eno talks about music, he talks about um, the second something becomes obsolete, it becomes nostalgic. And you mm. know, the, the technology we resented for its limitations now become like something that we, we love and adore and want to go back to and play with more. And I think obviously like some people's relationship with that is what we were alluding to earlier, where it's like, I spent a lot of time learning this thing. I, I accepted the limitations of the thing. And now I have a mastery of the thing. And then like, you move on and then you're in the process of learning a new thing and this, that, and the other. But there is also just like a sense of like that, that the power of nostalgia and wanting to go back to something that feels simpler. Yeah. One other thing I'll say is like, I think especially with these final fantasy, like these earlier ones, it's like, because of those technical limitations, there is so much of an emphasis on melody, which I, I think is what makes a lot of the music so memorable is that they have really strong melodies and you get to associate them with different characters. And in a lot of like later ones, when they have the ability to like, you know, have more percussion and more kind of like more kind of soundscapey things to to play with. Even though like that stuff might like always be more appropriate for whatever given game or given situation, there is something lost like without, you know, without having these like strong melodies, which I think are more characteristic of like older games. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. On the subject of music and video game music, you composed the show's theme song and you did a very good job giving the feeling uh, of approximation of a video game, especially one that doesn't exist because it's a theme song for my podcast. <laughs> uh, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit and sort of get your sonic inspirations for it, where you went to and how you arrived at what we now have as the show's uh, theme song. Oh, well, thank you for the kind words, first of all. And also, I, I just I would just like to give my personal appreciation for the original theme song, which I did <laughs> like very much. And I, you know, I, I just wanted to shoot my shot <laughs> by offering <laughs> my services. But uh, that the original one will it holds a place in my heart. Yeah, no, it is. It's, 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 I guess it's going to have like that whole nostalgic feeling soon. I, uh, you know, but like. I don't know how much you've seen of it, but it is a wonderful theme song and people have been very positive on it. And I'm, I'm very, I'm very grateful for it because like anytime somebody talked to me about the Majora's Mask episode, which was, you know, the sweeping three hour podcast talking about my favorite game, everybody's like, man, that theme song kicks ass. And I'm like, okay, great. Oh, oh that's awesome. awesome. I'm, I'm so stoked. <laughs> I'm so, to hear that. so stoked to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and not to break the fiction, but you did, I thought you did a masterful job of like introducing it with the time yeah. loop. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah just to talk about the theme song a little bit that that came to me pretty easily 
I, I think I remember like sitting down to like play Final Fantasy for the episode. It was pretty soon after we talked about it. And I uh, was like, okay, I need to like start maybe getting the timeline wrong. But anyway, like I <laughs> sat down and I was thinking to myself, I should write that theme song, you know, tomorrow or something. I should get started in it. I was playing a game and then I just started like humming the tune to myself. And I was like, oh, that would be good. So I got out my phone and I recorded like a voice memo. And then as I started playing more, I was like, I bet the baseline would go something like this. And then I was like, well, fuck it. I just <laughs> went over and like to my computer and then I started working on it. And then I finished in one sitting, then just had a computer meltdown and lost the, the project 100%. Oh, God. After like two hours. I was like, God, no, no, I lost it. And then I was like, I don't feel like doing this exact same thing right now, but I know if I don't do it now, I'm going to not be happy with, <laughs> I, you know, it's freshest right now. So I got to power through and do it. So then I just like basically just rewrote the whole thing note for note again. And I was like, okay, it, it sounds the same. I, I think I got it all. Use the same instruments, use the same groove and everything. So it magically all came together. To me, it was a, a good happenstance of like that inspiration hitting of like, oh, I think I know exactly what it is before I even like sat down at the keyboard to, to write it, um, which doesn't happen that often. But when it does happen, it's very satisfying. It makes me feel like a very good composer. You are. But uh, and just uh, soundscape wise, I, I yeah, I wanted it to have like some chip toony or eight bit, you know, synthy elements to it. So it sounded like, hey, this is most definitely a video game podcast, <laughs> but uh, still use like real drum samples and um, guitar and stuff so that it was like, you know, still natural and and of today with like a toe in yesteryear, if that makes sense. No, yeah, no, you did that a really good job. That was a lot job. of metaphors in one sentence, but <laughs> no, it was, I, I read it, I heard it, I feel it, and it's <laughs> it's great because, uh, you know, obviously, like my the theme song before this one was uh, me just going like, all right, what rhymes with start? Uh, <laughs> and then, hey, man, that's all songwriting is. Art, great, okay, great. I love the Super Mario Brothers two theme song. Let's do that, and then <laughs> that's great. We got it, nailed it, got in, and let's let's record it in <laughs> one take. Got it in one. Yeah, let's let's disrespect the whole process of music making here. And then like an actual musician goes out of his way to compose a theme song for me, loses it, does it again from scratch. I mean, I, I love it. It's a wonderful theme song. I uh, the first time you sent me a uh, like when you sent me the whip for it before, like you finalized it, uh, I played for the first time uh, next to my roommate, Avery. He was like, that, mm -hmm. that's that's really good. That's for the podcast. Like, yeah, he's like, that breakdown's really, really good. And he's like, yeah, no, this is nice. It's, awesome. it's, it's a great song. Well, thank you, Kiefer. And thank you, Avery. Yeah, we love your theme song. Everybody else seems to really love the theme song. I really appreciate you doing it. And I really appreciate having you on the show to talk about a monumental video game that we'll get to in just a moment. That would have been the perfect transition for it. But hey, I have a couple other questions for you. All right. <laughs> you know, it's just like Final Fantasy VII. Like there, there's like little mini games you have to do before you get back to the main thing. Oh, sure. We'll talk about that. You know, you talked about games that you were playing lately on the Steam Deck and everything like that. Uh, obviously, like you grew up, from basically the Atari all the way to the Switch and the, the modern ecosystem of consoles, uh, what are some other games that mean a lot to you that you could have talked about almost as much as you could have talked about today's game? Yeah, like I, I think RPGs, you know, from that era kind of are what always kind of connected to me the most. But also like a lot of like those 
90s eras like point and click adventures felt formative to me like mist for some reason like really captured me and so i still to this day even though it's not a perfect game i mean none of these are perfect games but like like mist really and all the sequels i i loved playing and sort of loved just kind of figuring out the story and figuring out the world and the puzzles and i've even like at some point like read the the mist novels that came out <laughs> And I also want to take this opportunity to talk about a game nobody remembers called The Journeyman Project, and the, especially the the sequel, The Journeyman Project Two, which was just an amazing point and click adventure about like solving time crimes. You like work for like a uh, like a time travel organization, and you get framed for like disrupting time, and you have to go in like ten years in the future to like you know solve your future self's like. The crime that he's been framed for. <laughs> That's the game that for some reason really stuck with me. Day of the Tentacle, I loved. And I think more, you know, modern games uh like Mass Effect, you know, another RPG, um, is a game I played, you know, front to back, one through three, several times and loved that. But also like Stardew Valley, you know, is a game I've I've really kind of come back to a lot in the past couple of years. And even games like, you know, like Red Dead Redemption 2, like I do like Kind of like a slow simulator like that. Yeah. Not every open world game clicks with me, but like something about that one really like kind of stuck with me and like made me like think about it a lot afterwards. I've only played it once, but another thing, another game I had on my list of special games was it's like 10 years old. Uh, Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Did mm, you ever yeah, play I know that? about that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's the game where you control these two brothers kind of with opposite sides of the joystick. Something about there's like a twist that happens in that game that just kind of blindsided me. And it's kind of like one of the strongest emotional reactions I've had to like any piece of media ever. And I kind of don't want to say anything more about it if that's intriguing at all to you or your listeners. There's just some really great storytelling that happens in that game. And it feels so specific to like, oh, this would not work as a movie. Like it felt like, oh, this is a perfect thing to happen in a video game. Yeah, that, I always think that is very cool where it feels like, you know, because a cutscene is just a movie. But like when it feels like this was the special thing about this, like is so unique to, to gaming. That's that's special. Yeah, no, that's a game I've been meaning to go back and play because I bought it on a Steam sale years and years ago. But the computer that I had is like the college laptop I was using wasn't quite strong enough to run it in a comfortable way. Yeah, I said, I'll come back to this when I have a stronger computer. And that you reminded me of it. So maybe I'll check that out soon. Yay. Yeah, that'd be great. So clearly a lot of games mean a lot to you. A variety of games too, because you talked about Stardew Valley. You talked about 90s point and click games. You talked about Red Dead Redemption 2 and uh, Brothers, uh, two brothers. <laughs> Wait, hang on. I was about to say Brothers <laughs> A Way missed. Out, which well, A Way Out is that other game where it's like two players on the screen, but it's two separate controllers, a completely different type of game. Oh, um, right, right, right. Yeah, Brothers A Way Out. <laughs> um, the Brothers game. Uh, all all completely different genres, but we're here to talk about a game that basically changed the entire landscape of video games, one that changed our understanding of the medium. Uh, it is certainly one of the most important games ever made. It is the most widely known game in one of the most popular franchises of the medium. It left a meteor-sized impact on the world. It is Final Fantasy VII.
Final Fantasy VII is a Japanese role-playing game developed by Square, now known as Square Enix, after a series of mergers and acquisitions. At the time, Square was primarily known for developing JRPGs such as the Final Fantasy series, the Romancing Saga series, Secret of Mana series, Live Alive, Chrono Trigger, and so on. Final Fantasy VII was published by Square in Japan and by Sony Computer Entertainment Worldwide. This is going to come up later. It is a game of many firsts. The first Final Fantasy game to use full motion video and 3D character models. It's the first Final Fantasy game to be released on the PlayStation. And it's the first numbered entry to not be released on a Nintendo console. I'll talk more about the specifics of this game and its production shortly, as it's instrumental to understanding why the game has the reputation that it does, why it's like uh, held up as like a singular entry in like a, a series with so many wonderful video games. But I want to take the time to cover the very basic details of the story and the significant figures behind it. It was produced by series creator Hironobu Sagaguchi. Uh, it's directed by Yoshinori Kitase, who also directed Final Fantasy VI, Final Fantasy VIII, and Final Fantasy X, as well as Chrono Trigger, another one of my favorite games of all time. We've talked about him multiple times in this episode already. We'll talk about him again. The score was composed by Nobuo Uematsu, who was the main composer for the first 10 Final Fantasy video games. Uh, Yusuke Naora served as the art director, and Tetsuya Nomura is credited as the character design and battle visual director. This is the first game where Nomura is the lead character designer. He would go on to do this for other titles, including Final Fantasy VIII and X, and would also serve as the director of the Kingdom Hearts series. Final Fantasy VII is so massive, it could not be contained in a single disc. The PlayStation version shipped with three discs. A game that dense cannot be summarized quickly, but to briefly establish the premise, the storyline of this game, Final Fantasy VII is a fantasy, wait for it, story with industrial and sci-fi imagery. It is set in the world of Gaia, which contains a life force called the Life Stream, which is a spiritual energy that gives life to everything on the planet. This Life Stream is being drained and processed into an energy source called Mako by the Shinra Electric Power Company a massive corporation that dominates the world as Mako is the primary energy source for most of the planet. Even though their actions are actively hurting the planet and threatening the life of everything on it, they are able to maintain their grip on the world through their elite fighting force Soldier, a private military group consisting of soldiers enhanced by Mako. They also have a security force known as the Turks to carry out more covert operations. An eco-terrorist group known as Avalanche is working to destroy Shinra and their operations so the planet can recover the game begins with you playing as those eco-terrorists, what? As they carry out operations to destroy Mako reactors in Midgar. Midgar is the technologically advanced megacity where Shinra is headquartered. Among the members at Avalanche are Barrett Wallace, their passionate leader whose right arm has been replaced with a gun. Tifa Lockhart, owner of the bar 7th Heaven in the slums that also serves as the headquarters of Avalanche. She's a hand-to-hand -hand combat specialist who cares deeply for her friends, which includes her childhood friend, possibly, Cloud Strife, whom she recruits so she can be close to him. Cloud is the game's lead protagonist. He lacks social graces and struggles with expressing himself, and as such presents himself as a hardened and uncaring person so as not to come off as confused and lonely. When an attack on one of the Mako reactors goes awry, Cloud ends up falling into the city slums where he is found by Aerith Gainsborough, a spunky and cocky flower peddler. Aerith asks Cloud to protect her from the covert ops group The Turks in exchange for a date. The Turks are pursuing Aerith as she may be the key to finding the Promised Land, which holds untold amounts of Lifestream energy. Aerith is captured by the Turks and then rescued by Avalanche, who learns that Shinra's president is murdered by Sephiroth. Yes, another person is involved now. He is a powerful soldier 
who is from Cloud's past and was presumed dead. Avalanche must now pursue Sephiroth while being hunted by the rest of Shinra in order to save the world from two evil forces who aim to destroy it. Along the way, they meet the rest of their party members, including Red 13, an intelligent quadruped from a distant tribe, Kate Sith, a robot cat uh, operated by a disgruntled Shinra employee, Sid Highwind, a foul-mouthed pilot looking to be among the stars, and some optional party members as well. Crucially uh, important, but also optional party members, Vincent, the, the vampire-esque kind of guy, and then uh, <laughs> Yuffie, who is wonderful. Uh, shenanigans ensue. So that's Final Fantasy VII storyline. It was released for the PlayStation in 1997. Other games released in 1997 include Age of Empires, Diablo, Fallout, Star Fox 64, Bushido Blade, Oddworld Abe's Odyssey, Parappa the Rappa, Crash Bandicoot 2 Cortex Strikes Back, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, and GoldenEye 007, which I previously covered on the show with Jason Kleberg. Uh, real quick, uh, you know, you played video games around this era. Have you played any of these games? Yes, I uh, definitely played GoldenEye a little in college. I kind of was late to the N64, but that was like a good college party game. I played I played Diablo for sure. Oddly enough, the very first Diablo is kind of like the one I've spent the most time with. Mm-hmm. That, that lines up with you being a PC gamer in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was another. Wait, what were the, like the last three games you said? Uh, Parappa the Rapper, Crash Bandicoot, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. That's it. Yeah, Symphony of the Night, I definitely uh, spent some time with too. That was a good one. Yeah. Great music. Fantastic and music. Also and also famously, uh, you could put the CD in like a CD player and it would it would play the soundtrack. Yeah, I loved I love little things like that. Look, there were a lot of great monumentally important video games that came out in 1997. GoldenEye 007 changed uh, our perception of first-person shooters as something that could be played on consoles. Castlevania Symphony of the Night took the formula that we established with Super Metroid and put it into mm-hmm. a different series, creating a name that frustrates many people. Metroidvania. Get over it, guys. We understand what it means. <laughs> Terminology is meant to convey something that we can understand in a shorthand manner. And we understand it. I know that it doesn't necessarily apply to every game in both series. We get it. We get it. <laughs> we get it. Anyway, what ultimately made you decide on Final Fantasy VII? For me, Final Fantasy VII is just, especially like the first 10 or so hours, like just has such a strong vibe to me. It is something that like I just always connected with. I've come to learn that I just really love a like a cozy slum in a video game. Mm-hmm. And that whole opening sequence and like Seventh Heaven and like Sector 7 in the game just have such a great feel to them. The city of Midgar was so interesting to me and is presented in such a beautiful way of how you kind of like, you know, start in this dark reactor and then it kind of opens up to like a subway. What? There's not subways in Final Fantasy 4. I mean, I guess there's famously a train in Final Fantasy 6. But uh, <laughs> despite there being like technological things in, in earlier Final Fantasies, this is the first one that felt like modern to me because it, it felt like kind of like new york city in a way it felt like oh there's a subway there's this kind of like grosser parts of town and then there are like nicer parts of town something about the color palette is just so like warm and inviting and also so very 90s in it there's like green light and stuff the story's not perfect there's a lot of like question marks you know the further you go down the line but i think the story is very good 
in what it's setting out to do. I think it's cool that there is a main character who is flawed, who you learn later is like a main character who's not the chosen one, which is so antithetical to like RPGs where it's like, hey, here's a sword from the moon because you're the moon's son or something like that. (laughs) You learn in this game, you're like, no, actually, Cloud, you were the the reject. So you were kind of like the failed experiment. I I thought that that was very cool. And I kind of always love those stories about like the idea of fate being wrong or that you can like change your own destiny or things like that. Yeah, that's kind of like why this game to me has like survived for so long. <laughs> that I love the backgrounds, the environments in this game, but like when you're looking at the polygons, it kind of makes it's kind of one of the worst looking Final Fantasy games in a lot of ways. You know, I think despite all that, like the the hooks of these characters and like their relationships is so strong and like I don't know, warm is just uh is the word I keep coming back to that it just like feel so good and that might be just personal to me like because i think i have this connection where i don't know what this game came out when i was maybe 16 yeah 97 i was 16 i had been like really getting into like music and like playing in in like you know a band and stuff so i didn't i wasn't playing that many video games anymore i kind of took like maybe a couple years away and i remember my was it my show choir <laughs> i was in the show choir <laughs> in high school and like going on a class trip to new york city for some competition or whatever and uh somebody brought their playstation and they had the demo of final fantasy 7 because i don't think it was out yet being like hey you should come over to our room and check out this demo if you like the old games you, you you'll probably like this and i was like i don't know final fantasies i'm, I'm kind of done with that and i played the like the opening sequence i was like fuck this is great actually not long after that i like you know, went to a pawn shop and got a used uh, <laughs> PlayStation. I think probably the first console I bought with my own money and like, you know, went and bought Final Fantasy seven just so I could play this and like keep experiencing it. And I've also say I, I got a cheap memory card, a mad cats card that was supposed to have several pages of memory cards in it. And it was cheaper than the Sony one, but it was very full, like prone to failure. So I ended up playing the opening sequence of this game many times because I would just turn <laughs> on the PlayStation and be like, there's no data on this thing. And I'd be like, well, I like it enough that I want to see what happens next. Thank God it has one of the best openings in an RPG ever or you'd be in trouble. Exactly. And it would skip a lot for me. I feel like I had a kind of a shaky, like used copy of the game. So it would like, you know, I'd have to clean it or else it would like scratch and freeze <laughs> during those FMV sequences. <laughs> right. You touched on a lot of points there. This is a wonderful video game. It does. It has so much going for it. You play it in 1997 and there's nothing quite like it. The characterization is very interesting. Like you said, like at this point, RPGs that we were familiar with and a lot of stories uh, that we were familiar with in that kind of fantasy setting deal with like chosen people. And this game is basically subverting a lot of stuff in terms of, you know, not just the characterization of Cloud, but also like the chosen one narrative in general, which makes it so interesting in its place in like rpgs and especially jrpgs in the west because this game that is so foundational to our understanding of rpgs in our uh, side of the world is breaking so much of the convention of what was established before and then obviously like what you said like cloud is a guy who is deluding himself thinking he is a chad when he is in fact the virgin I made myself this, I made myself the cool guy in this meme and you're the sad and angry person. So I win the argument. (laughs) 
Or maybe he's the guy in the meme, like the guy in the corner of the party saying stuff they don't even know I was in soldier. <laughs> you weren't in soldier. You you passed out on the bus. You were sick. <laughs> anyway, this podcast, uh, Mike, is about meaningful and memorable video games. And when I say that, I'm usually talking through the lens of our guests and their personal experience with a game, the impact it made on their life, on your life, we should say. That's why I spend the first third or so of every episode talking about the guest and getting to know the guest and their taste and everything, because it's important to understand somebody's emotional relationship with a video game. And I'd like to get to know the person first. I don't want to just jump right Mm in, uh, unlike this game, which does jump right in. Maybe some people get frustrated when they click play on an episode of like Fallout New Vegas and they hear me and my buddy talking about wrestling and butt rock for almost an hour. But this is the podcast I want to make. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um... The point is, this podcast isn't an oral history. Uh, The main goal of this podcast is to get new perspectives. It's made me see video games in a different light uh, doing this podcast. Uh, It's got me to play games outside of my usual comfort zone. It's introduced me to so much. And by making the conversation personal, it takes a lot of pressure off of the guest. It takes a lot of pressure off of me. And it keeps me from having to be comprehensive when discussing a video game. I don't want this to be a full I don't want this to be about here is Final Fantasy VII from every single angle. I'm sure there are nine hour video essays you can watch about that. (laughs) There's a good oral history from 2017 on Polygon. If you want like a production history of this game, what the what people thought being made, it interviewed over 30 of the developers that worked on the game. It's it's pretty thorough if you want that kind of stuff. But I say all this and also I'm going to have to contextualize Final Fantasy VII a little bit uh, in this episode and do something a little different because it's often referenced as one of the best games of all time. And this is the Final Fantasy game that people are most familiar with. And there's more to this game's legacy than just it being an especially good video game. It's important. I love this game. This is a game I played for the first time in 2020, uh, and I I loved Mm. it. It's uh, 23 years after its release. And yeah, there are dated elements to it, but there's I certainly love this game a lot. And I, I, I understand why it has the reputation as being a really good video game. But... I'm going to say something. Maybe it's a hot take. Maybe it's a risky take. I don't know. Go for it. Final Fantasy VII is one of the most important and consequential video games ever released in terms of what it represents to the industry at large. And we're going to we're going to both talk about this. Uh, but some notes I have right here. We have to keep in mind that this game was released in 1997. I, this is let's let's think about what is in the surrounding landscape i mentioned those games earlier the first diablo game is out the first fallout game right this is the year that castlevania symphony of the night comes out this is a year after super mario 64 so this is still like a generation that is establishing a lot of what we are like as like a big a lot of big mainstays like we're just now getting 3d movement 3d environments a lot of franchises are being born here but at the same time stuff is still happening, right? Like, this is a year before Metal Gear Solid. This is a year before The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And it's still a full year before Pokemon Red and Blue would come out in North America. And that's that's that, that's the thing that's crazy to me. It's like, we don't even have Pokemon yet in America when this game is coming out to... Yeah, it wasn't. This, this is important qualifying information. And we also yeah. need to understand a little bit about how this game came to be and why it took the shape that it did. Because... This is a game that, in a lot of ways, is hugely important. Like, yeah, I'd say, like, I don't want to cover a game comprehensively, but there are a few things I really, really have to say at the top before we talk about 
the, the, the game's emotional impact on us because mm-hmm. we talked about it a little bit earlier. JRPGs haven't penetrated the West yet. And it's a crazy thing to think about, but this is the seventh entry in what is the second most popular RPG from Japan. The most popular RPG from Japan is fucking Pokemon, and it's the highest grossing media franchise of all time. And number two, yeah. Final Fantasy, which is a phenomenon in Japan, but it's also very popular in the rest of the world. Yeah, it's also funny, like, I'm also remembering back then, we didn't use the term JRPG because, like, it was just RPG. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, RPG had not settled into, like, the, the American concept of gaming yet. So that it was just like anything that was turn-based, anything that was character-based really was just an RPG. (laughs) That's something that just occurred to me just now. Yeah. The first thing I want to talk about is like, you know, the the Western push in terms of making Final Fantasy VII this massive phenomenon because this was a very conscious thing that they did. And I guess I said I want to talk about that first. I guess I have to talk about how this game came to be. Uh, I'm not going to hit every single note here, but a thing that we take for granted now uh, now that like Sony is like this big console juggernaut is before then, you know, Nintendo were the big cats on the town and a big, the reason I'm trying to find a, I'm trying to find a good way of saying this without pissing off people who love Nintendo, because I love Nintendo. When I say this, I love Nintendo too. When they were at the top of their game in like the NES and the, the super Nintendo, they had a lot of power that they could throw at people who wanted to publish video games on the Nintendo consoles. And this created this relationship where they could be like, well, you have to do this if you want to be released on a Super Nintendo. A lot of the localization woes of games like uh, Final Fantasy 2 uh, or Final Fantasy 4, uh, as it's now known in the rest of the, <laughs> in the whole world, they had to like censor a lot of imagery because it's like, if you want to release this over here, well, Americans are weird and they, they can't handle that kind of stuff. And you know what? Fair point. Uh, they, you need to make this game easier. <laughs> they they were wrong, I guess. Yeah, like they they didn't get to play the a real Final Fantasy two or three, so they're gonna be they're too stupid to play this game. You got to fix it, and also don't say die, and also don't reference any Christianity. Is Jewish stuff okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, Jewish references are okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> very interesting relationship of Jewish imagery and uh, Japanese video games. Like, I'm I'm very fascinated by that subject, and I hope there's really good writing on that because I'm fascinated by that in Pokemon, the Final Fantasy series. A lot of JRPGs have like a really strong, like a uh, very overt reference to like jewish apocrypha mythology and uh the tanakh and the contents within oh i don't think i knew that that's really interesting yeah no it's like something that like like Levi- like anytime you see leviathan in anything that's oh wow wow yeah we're we're, we're digressing within like a already digression within itself so <laughs> but yeah no like now sony comes in and they are dead set on making the playstation the biggest thing ever they're among the people burned by nintendo because they were going to collaborate and make some sort of console together it didn't pan out sony decides to do their own thing and square is one of their most reliable third party people that they work with the final fantasy series very popular in japan like they don't sell poorly in america when they come out here but several of them didn't because square publishes a lot of their own video games at this stage in their life and like it's up to them to like make those decisions and to release things or not and when they do nintendo gives them a lot of feedback as to like releasing them so it's like do we go through the effort like is it worth the time is it worth the money is it worth the energy and then here's square square is like look discs right discs you can make a bigger video game right number one Number two, 
you have a problem with the publishing in America, we'll publish it everywhere else. You can publish it in Japan. We'll publish it everywhere else. Uh, they did get some notes on a localization initially. They weren't, there was like a plan for them to not do the honeybee sequence at all in America. And then like, they got a lot of like negative feedback from the developers and like the American fans from the like American fans who were hearing about this. And they're like, no, no, don't, don't do that. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, fine. And then like from then on square was like, look, you can publish it, but like, don't, don't fucking touch anything. And like deal, deal. We want that. We want the video game. Right. <laughs> um, we're also going to like make this massive, massive, massive push, this marketing push. We'll like front the money to like really market this thing. The production budget for Final Fantasy VII is the biggest any video game has ever been at this point in time. More people worked on this video game than anybody else had ever worked on a video game at this point in time. It is literally the biggest video game of all time. I want you to think about this for a second. This this reliable third-party publisher for Nintendo, scalped by the competition, given more money than God, told you can do whatever you want, just make it big, make it flashy, show everybody that we have a big dick, basically. And then they deliver on it. And then they're like, now we want to make sure everybody in the world plays this game. We're going to buy advertisements on like primetime television. When you're watching The Simpsons, when you're watching SNL, they're going to see TV ads that are going to sell this game as the most like important event of, of the year. And it's like, it's too good. It's too big to be told in a movie. It has to be played and experienced for yourself. The commercials for this game go hard. I watched them for the research of this episode. Oh, I don't think I've seen them. Beyond the edge of reality lies a story of ultimate conquest, a story of war and friendship, a story of a love that can never be, and a hatred that always was. And now, the most anticipated epic adventure of the year will never come to a theater near you. Final Fantasy VII. The commercials are insane, and they don't show a single minute of it's like a single second of gameplay. It is all cutscenes. It's like, of look at this. <laughs> yeah. And look, the game is great. I'm not saying any of this to undercut the game, but yeah, those cutscenes are amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huge marketing push. And here's the thing hugely successful. Critics love it. It is immediately like hailed as a, like a critical masterpiece. Like it's critically acclaimed. It's a masterpiece. It wins so many Game of the Year awards. It sells insane amounts everywhere it is the second best-selling game on the playstation one think about that wow a jrpg <laughs> only outsold by gran turismo that's wild and keep in mind the playstation the best-selling console of all time at this point in time and yeah. like it has been since outsold by the playstation 2 and a few other things but like at this point in time they not only beat nintendo they beat them by a significant margin in terms of console sales they are able to scalp their competition so thoroughly they make the biggest video game ever made at this point in time it hits every single thing financial gamble they made making this game hit. Yeah. That's the stuff that like factors into like this being the biggest game of all time. And in addition to that, like the big part of this big Western push, the game is so huge. They need to like get an international production team going. So Square expands. They bring in uh, American people to work on the FMV scenes. They bring in people not just from the video game industry. They bring in movie people, people who worked on True Lies, people who worked on the Terminator 2, Star Wars. Jurassic Park. Like these are people that they're bringing in who like know special effects so they can make this game as flashy as possible. More than 200 animators and programmers. A multi-million dollar production. Over two years in the making. And a cast of thousands. 
They said it couldn't be done in a major motion picture. They were right. Final Fantasy VII. And that's a big part. Like, Western sensibilities become a big thing uh, in Final Fantasy VII in a way that it hasn't necessarily been a priority in previous uh, video games. Like, the developers are listening to a lot of, like, My Bloody Valentine, so you see <laughs> references to Loveless all over the place. Oh, sure, sure. This is the first Final Fantasy video game with a black character in it. It is an attempt at, like, bringing in a broader appeal. Yeah. First game where they cuss, too. Yeah, there's a lot of cussing. It's, yeah. it's It has an edge to it. Like, look at Vincent and tell me that wasn't trying to, like win some sort of cool point there's there's a lot going on it's here. got like a the crow vibe to me <laughs> it's a very 90s like tortured uh vampire man so much of the crow this is a blockbuster in the form of a video game and it's a seismic shift in like i have to qualify like our discussion of final fantasy 7 with this information because I think that kind of has gotten, not lost, I guess, but it is something that like needs to be considered when people are talking about this game among the numbered entries of the Final Fantasy franchise, among all the other video games that have been released before or since. Like, I think I can be told I'm wrong here. I'm not trying to be reductive when I say this, but like when like people talk about like the most consequential video games ever released up to this point, almost half the time between like the release of the NES through the Nintendo 64 era, like half of those games had the word Mario in the title. Right. Like there's there's other video games that are important during this time. Mm -hmm. Doom is a big one that like changes things. But, you know, after Mario, Mario 3, Mario 64, Final Fantasy 7, it is also like super consequential in terms of like the shape of everything that comes after it because so much of everything that comes out is a reaction to it. Yeah. Especially within like within Square, people who are releasing games who aren't square nintendo is like really humbled by all this because like this is like a this is like representational of like what went wrong the second like they they become the underdog and not not mm. even the underdog it's just they just get outflanked sufficiently they have to like react to this it's like ground zero for all of this it, it, yeah. it's, it, it's it's huge yeah and I, I imagine like they probably like a lot of people that were fans of final fantasies on super nintendo were poached like over to the playstation because yeah. if you think you're like a kid your parents will only let you have one system maybe like you're going to go to the one if you love final fantasy you are going to go to the system that has it even if it means you will not be able to hang out with your very good friend mario yeah it's like do you want to make a five hour final fantasy game on a nintendo 64 or do you want to play an epic on the playstation one discs exactly. motherfucker you have to get with the times <laughs> asshole yeah, Mario 64, fan fantastic game. Phenomenal. This is a 40-hour fucking video. <laughs> At least. But yeah, no, important game. Yes. <laughs> Any other points you want to make in terms of like the, the times around? Because you, you actually played this game around the time it came out. Like, Yeah, I was maybe a little after because, uh, you know, I, I don't think I played it right when it came out. But it, uh, yeah, it was like the first time I saw like a normal dude in my high school wearing a final fantasy seven shirt just wearing a video game shirt like yeah. i don't know it was, if that was like a pre-order bonus but it was a guy who like wasn't like a computer lab kid wearing a video game shirt and that felt monumental to me i was like this is interesting there's something happening here yeah this is a video game like it's an rpg it is a turn-based rpg yeah it doesn't fundamentally like rewrite in terms of actual play style like our understanding of an RPG, it, it makes it more inviting to people who haven't played or grown up playing this genre for sure. Really, it's like it's aesthetic 
in narrative is like the, the big like things that make it stand out. Like this game has guns in it. Like right. even if you are playing like a game that like is a previously like associated with nerds, it's inviting you in because it's like looking so cool and distinct. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about what this game means to you on a personal level in a moment, Mike. But before we do that, I do want to talk about this game's availability in a segment that we do every episode called No Country for Old Games. I'll try and do this one quickly because I just talked so much already <laughs> about this game's development and contemporary impact. But I always have to make time every episode to talk about the subject of video game preservation. It means a great deal to me. Over time, hardware becomes obsolete and even games released on a console as significant as the PlayStation become lost to time. And I just, you know, gave Sony and Square a lot of praise in terms of how they were able to handle things in a, in a competitive uh, sphere and like, you know, that's that's my business degree talking. That's the that's the interesting <laughs> stuff. Like the one interesting thing about like my business degree is I, I like looking at these like battles of the past or Coke mm-hmm. versus Pepsi battles. Like what was going <laughs> on here? Uh, but these things are bleak in uh, practice because it's a money game. It's all a money game at the end of the day. And Square especially is notably bad at uh, how they handle their properties. Square Enix, True. as it's now called, is. One of the great consequences of the success of Final Fantasy VII because um, <laughs> they got so big that like, and like they got so much support from, you know, people like Sony and the, the people who publish these games on their consoles that they just don't do a lot of their stuff themselves. And they have to be like dragged by the seat of their pants to like re-release anything. Yeah. So many people can't play Chrono Trigger now. That's one of the best games ever made. Yeah. But like, yeah, you, maybe you get a, like an inferior Steam version on PC and that's it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's an uphill battle, game preservation. And instead of uh, making games more readily available, Square is usually content to just like sell off certain video game properties and invest in crypto two years too late and hope for the best. <laughs> Oof. But enough dunking on them because this is probably the, a, a bad time to bring this up because this game's actually pretty well preserved in the grand scheme. <laughs> <laughs> so the game was originally released PlayStation 1997. We just talked about that whole rigmarole. At the same time, uh, they were developing a PC port for the game that was published by Eidos Interactive, released in June of 1998 for North America and Europe. Uh, this port would not be released in Japan. Square, now Square Enix's relationship with Eidos over the years, also a very interesting bit of history to read up on. Um, But let's talk about Final Fantasy VII. So yeah, there's a PC port of this game. This PC port is actually a huge deal because future versions of this game would not be built off of the PlayStation 1 version of this game. They're using the source code from the PC version instead. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. When you are looking at these re-releases. They're all kind of built off of the PC port. Final Fantasy VII was re-released digitally on the PlayStation Network in 2009. Uh, This version was compatible with the PlayStation 3, the PlayStation Portable, and the PlayStation Vita. 
the aforementioned PC version of Final Fantasy VII would end up providing the source code for future ports of the game. French developer .emu or .emu updated the PC version of the game so it could be played on modern operating systems in 2012. Uh, this version would be the first time a PC version of Final Fantasy VII would release in Japan. Their version of the PC release had quality of life features, including a high speed mode, a toggle to turn off random encounters, and a toggle to activate maximum stats and unlimited limit breaks, which is the ultimate attack in the game. Later ports would be based off of this PC version and feature these enhancements. They would be released digitally on iOS, Android, PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, and Xbox One. The PlayStation 4 and Xbox One versions of the game can be played on the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series S and X. And a physical version of Final Fantasy VII was released on the Switch alongside the Final Fantasy VIII remaster in 2019. So, yes, I dunked on them. Yes, they're <laughs> a stupid company. But I got to give them credit where it's due. This is about an A for availability, if there was one. Yeah, for sure. It can be played on all currently supported consoles, as well as your goddamn phone. You can buy a physical version on at least one console. It's a miracle, people. It's an A <laughs> from a company that generally sucks and doesn't market their video games and or know how to sell them or understand their audience but hey ho congratulations you crypto nerds <laughs> you did it <laughs> when you want to replay this game mike how do you do it well i, I hope this isn't too controversial of a, of a take but uh this time around when I, I played the game for the show i did use an emulator um i played the original ps1 version uh, on my Steam Deck uh, via an emulator, mm -hmm. but I feel uh, comfortable admitting that because I, as I said earlier, I still own my PS1 discs, and I've also bought this game. I'm trying to think of the other versions I bought, so I had it on PlayStation. I had that original PC port from 1998. I think I had the Vita version. Hmm. I've also played on. I think I also have the PS4 version, <laughs> and I definitely have the Switch version. Uh, so I've. I have many Final Fantasy 7s. Yeah, there's so many Final Fantasy 7s. You don't know how true that is. <laughs> you do, actually. I'm sure you do. Right. Um, uh, yeah, normally I rate games on a scale of A to ARG. <laughs> ARG is obviously me saying that, like, oh, man, it's so hard to get video games. ARG, right. that sucks. And it's not me covertly advocating for piracy in any way. That's Never. illegal. Breaking laws is bad. Don't commit eco-terrorism. No. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the point is rare square win on the availability of this game. And it makes sense that they would make this game so readily available because it is basically the shadow that they live under in terms of like, and I'm not saying that to like make fun of all their like future games in this same year, they release final fantasy tactics in Japan. They have great fucking games, guys. It is not the games that are the problem. It is the people in charge of the company. I need to emphasize that so much because people lack nuance in their thinking i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm just uh, i'm being petty today i don't know why that's <laughs> all right you're just anticipating uh every person on social media who will have a, a hot take on final fantasy 7 yeah this is just a segment where i get to be petty and there aren't a lot of people who will defend the corporate level of square without being like the biggest bootlickers in the world if you guys <laughs> hate chrono trigger that much i get it but like it's isn't it a miracle we got live alive on the switch think yeah. about also think about a miracle the, the, the final fantasy 8 re-release i thought that would never happen that remaster yeah i replayed that on switch i was like this look somehow looks so good too yeah yeah it's just like it's not it's not a, it's not a bad thing to wish things were better but 
this game, this this company is a Final Fantasy VII company. They they re-release and remake this game so many times. On a corporate level, I do not think they fundamentally understand the themes of this game or its purpose and point. That's true. There's cer- certainly been some good out of it. I'm a huge fan of the Final Fantasy VII remake. Or I should say I'm a fan of Final Fantasy VII Remake, which is not a remake, but a continuation of the Final Fantasy VII storyline of some kind of alternate universe kind of way. Right. Again, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm glad this game is readily available because it's a hugely popular video game. Uh, the original PlayStation version holds a 92 out of 100 on the review aggregation website Metacritic. It was the second best-selling video game on the original PlayStation, beaten, again, only by Gran Turismo. As of January 31st of this year, Final Fantasy VII is estimated to have sold over 14.1 million units. It is so popular, Final Fantasy VII, that it exists as a franchise within a franchise known as Compilation of Final Fantasy VII. (laughs) And multiple spinoff games, a sequel film, an OVA, a remake series, and other forms of media all existing under the Final Fantasy VII label, but we're not here to reduce Final Fantasy VII to a series of stats, sales, sales figures, mm-hmm. and countless, countless media properties. We are here to talk about the original game and the impact it had on somebody who played it. So thank you for being so patient as we talk of so course. much about the different angles of this game. But it's, fi- it's finally time to talk about the core of this whole thing. Your emotional the crisis core, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> the crisis core. Which I have not played. <laughs> Yeah, have I. Uh, what do you love about this game that you wish more video games would do? You know, like I said earlier, there's something about like the vibe of the game that is so correct or just so like enticing. And it feels very like, at least in the first part of the game, it, there's just like a unity to the experience where it just feels like it all feels connected. Like the music, the cinematics, the stories, the character and the character's motivations are all really kind of like, you know, coming together and operating at a good clip. So it it all feels like it's just really inviting. And I feel like, I don't know, sometimes games can take a little too long to pull you in or you just kind of feel hiccups or you feel the seams too much, which, uh, you know, I'm usually very forgiving of that kind of stuff, but there's something about how well this game in particular keeps all that momentum going from the beginning in the first you know five hours another thing about this game like i've talked about midgar and how cool the town midgar is but like really like all of the towns in this game i just love so much i just like calm has a cool unique look to it nibelheim has a unique cool look to it the junan uh the harbor town both the down by the sea area and like those kind of weird apartments like up by the naval base like mm-hmm. are just all very unique and i'm also talking about the interiors of of all the houses like there's just so much detail in each of those like little houses with their little cabinets or their like stoves and stuff and which is not even to mention like just the kind of random characters walking around there's just like a lot of weird little details to this game that's another thing i like about this game is like when you dig down to it, like a lot of these details are just so like kind of unique and weird. And I, I like that a lot. Some of the things connect like to the grand, to the bigger story. And some don't like, I'm thinking of the, uh, the, the guy in the slums who's like, has Mako poisoning who I, I, I know there's some, th- is that Zach? Like the guy that's kind of like bobbing up and down in the slums. 
I'm, I'm sure that's an interpretation. I've never thought yeah. that because I don't think about Zach on principle. Yeah. I think I might have accident or like um, incorrectly made that connection when I was younger. Like, oh, I, I think that's Zach. But it, like, even if it's not like just the fact that there's a guy there and you kind of don't know until later in the game about like the tattoos and the reunion. It's just like kind of building, building like piece of, of this world. And that's, yeah, that's a mistake. I think other games or other, you know, stories uh, make is like giving you too much too soon like too much exposition mm-hmm. and this is like such a rich world but it is uh not all thrown at you at the beginning there's not like a sequence that tells you like uh 500 years ago there were three warring nations i just have so little patience for that stuff like i really wanted to like triangle strategy last year and it was just like there are three nations who've been at war and I'm like, oh no, come on, please no. <laughs> um, I I want to, <laughs> to have the brain capacity to like dig down into lore like that, but uh, I much prefer something that's kind of like inviting and just kind of doles it out very slowly. Yeah, let's 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 go on that point for a second yeah. here. Like, this is a game that is like appealing to newcomers to the genre of mm-hmm. uh, RPGs, as well as you know, changing things for the people who are accustomed to the genre. It's, it's, it's inviting to both crowds, but the, the genius of it is the opening, right? Yeah. Like you're talking about like, you know, there's no text or narration uh, until like seconds before you pick up the controller and it's dialogue. The whole opening mm-hmm. cutscene, it's like this wonderful like view of the opening setting of Bidgar. It's detailed. It's mm-hmm. cinematic. It's insane that they did it. And it immediately is uh, pushing itself into that action scene where mm-hmm. you are your your player character cloud is on top of a train that is going to the Maka reactor so you can go and commit eco-terrorism as you should um <laughs> and it, it it just flows so well no, not a word is spoken from the time you press start until mm-hmm. the time you pick up the controller and it's yeah the character's yelling at you like we gotta do the plot now let's go do the plot let's play the right. game now great sure. let's do it it's so seamless it's so good it's so quick and it's not what we generally associate with the genre. We associate it with like a lot of like setup. And this game jumps right into the action. You yeah. are you are immediately fighting. You are engaged. It, it it does such a good job. Yeah, I think so often we think of like when people say good storytelling, that can often be misinterpreted as like a lot of words, a lot of lore, it, it's stuff like that. And I feel like this game is very good storytelling from the beginning because of of none of that. Like and it's like all the elements, the music that's like really ethereal, the bum bum bum, and it's like what is that? What's going on here? Just like the shot of of Eris praying, and it's like who is that? And you won't see her again for another like hour or so, and then only for a second. Oh oh yeah, and then like even before the train, like the the pullout shot of like showing you the entire city of Midgar, Midgar. Like, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that was so Im- impactful too. Yeah, you immediately know what your setting is. You have a fam- you're being introduced to like the core area. It is communicating so much to you without having to say anything to you. It's not like a, a lesser video game would be like Midgar, set on the planet Gaia. <laughs> this is Toledo, Ohio, but with an actual <laughs> nightlife to it, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> As I t- I uh, watched Advent Children the the movie two hours before we started recording, and in some ways, like that movie starts exactly like that. <laughs> Except with the child being like, Mako was a thing that made our lives better, but it hurt the planet. 
just I would say a storytelling flaw that it felt the need to sort of like tell you what the game Final Fantasy VII was as if you didn't already know if you're watching this movie. Yeah, which and, I know of some people who have stumbled into this problem because they assume like this is like some sort of like retelling of Final Fantasy VII. It's like, uh, nope, it's it's just picking up. But no, yeah, it's it's an incredible opening sequence. It's also like indicative of like how the rest of the game is going to flow because mm -hmm. from there, like the opening stretch of Midgar, which is on paper, it is the the prologue of the game. This is the appetizer. And it's already so filled with like game. There's a six hour game just within Midgar, validated yeah. by the fact that Final Fantasy VII Remake is strictly the entire Midgar stretch of the game stretched out to a little over 30 hours. But it's almost exactly six hours. I remember because I played the game for the first time when Remake was coming out. I, mm -hmm. I like made a point of screenshotting when I got out of Midgar. Yeah. And it was, again, almost exactly six hours on the dot. Oh, man. I think it was seven for me this time around. And I thought I was speeding through. So maybe uh, not as brisk as I, I thought I was. Well, I mean, like the other thing is like I had the, the quality of life improved version on the Switch where I'm able to play True. it at 3x speed. So yeah. I can like run through certain parts of it. So I'm sure like that that factors into it a little bit yeah so i'm able to true. speed up through a few uh random encounters yeah no but like and then that's just sort of indicative of like the flow of the rest of the game it's guiding you along it's not going at like a hurried pace or anything like that mm -hmm. it is still distinctly an rpg you can take in the environments and like absorb the details of the world but it's it's very very propulsive as a story like yeah. it's always moving you to the next thing and unlike a lot of rpgs it's also built in a way where you can rarely get lost and the moments of stillness that sort of contrast like the action sequences are really well placed. Like it feels this very well paced, you know, throughout. When the first time you get to Tifa's bar, it feels like, oh, I can breathe here and like sort of get to know. I can go around and press circle and see you know, what this person has to say or like visit this part of this town. And the same thing with like when you get to Eris's house for the first time or... Oh, actually, one of my favorite sequences or moments is like when you're escorting Eris or she's escorting you to Walmart and you just kind of like hang out in that little like playground for a little bit. And that's another thing I like a weird detail about this game. When I was thinking I like the weird stuff about this game is like they didn't need to have like this playground with this like Garfield looking slide, but it's just there and it's really unique and specific and I remember when I came to like that part of the the remake, me like, oh, there's the cat slide. They did it. <laughs> I can finally walk around it and go up in it. Yeah. Quick uh, aside here, because you, you keep saying Eris, uh, for our listeners, a big component that I forgot to mention during the No Country for Old Games section is the localization of this game. In the original PlayStation 1 localization, there was a very rushed uh, translation process because, again, there was, you know, they wanted to get this thing out in America, but they also didn't want to dilly daddle. So that part was very rushed through and they didn't get a lot of feedback and they didn't have a ton of like time. So some things did not translate well. There's a lot of famous grammatical issues. Oh, including the first battle where it's like, hey, be sure to attack this enemy when it hails as his tail up. Yeah, it doesn't give you very, um, it doesn't give you correct information sometimes. <laughs> Grammatical issues, like uh, there's one early on, I think, uh, Ares, who is Aerith in mm -hmm. every other version of the game, but in the original PlayStation 1 American release, it is Ares. Aerith is supposed to represent air, Earth, because of Aerith's role in the story as like uh, representational of nature. 
uh, her name is like the big famous translation error. So people who originally played this game have a different default name for her in her head. And then also like early on in the game, she'll say something like this guy are sick instead of this oh, guy yeah. is sick or these guys are sick. That's true. Be, this guy is sick. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the cussing that we're familiar with is also like more of an American affectation. And yeah, a lot of it yeah. doesn't make sense in context, like the bleeps, yeah, like um, that's true. Barrett early on describes like the uh, architecture of Bidgar's city is like a bleeping pizza. Yeah. In Japan, it's translated as rotten pizza, which right. is, a, you know, a very evocative image. And I think it's the name of one of the tracks on the soundtrack. Yeah, I think it is like below the rotting pizza in the game. The original game itself, he calls it bleeping pizza, which is like, what is the bleep? Is it fucking shitty pizza? I don't yeah, I don't know. Shitting pizza. Yeah, I guess because so, I guess like rotten can sound like a like, oh, these rotten jerks. As opposed yeah. to like literal, having literal rot is probably how he means it. Yeah, but like other future versions of this game uh, smooth out a lot of the translation uh, localization issues. But yeah, if you're playing the PlayStation 1 version, which Mike has and continues to do, like he, you will run into a few different things. And that's not to disrespect because that PlayStation 1 version was good enough that it secured its legacy. I also mostly just wanted to see the, like the disc change screens just for nostalgia's sake. They have those in the Final Fantasy VIII and seven oh, versions really? that I played. It'll say end of disc one. Oh, sure, sure. Which is like very funny in my yeah. context. It's like <laughs> I'm still playing the game. Like all I did was press A. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I get it, though. Uh, sorry, but you continue about talking about the virtues of this game. Oh, yeah. The other thing I wanted to say was like, I just really like that whole like when you go to the first town past Midgar, I think it's called Calm. And you have that whole like, okay, Cloud's going to tell the story of Sephiroth and like what happened. Like, so you have that whole flashback back to Nibelheim. From, or aside from a couple spots in Final Fantasy VI with like Terra's parents, like it's maybe one of the first instances of like an, an extended flashback, a playable flashback in a video game I can remember. I always thought that was really cool. And it's pretty long. It's like maybe like almost an hour long because you're playing and there are a couple different sections up. There's a save point in the middle of it, like where you go back to the present and Cloud's like, hey, y'all want to save our game? I've been talking for a while. Temp and, check. <laughs> yeah, let me get that 10 out. But um, to me, like, I just always thought that was really cool. And it felt like the fact that this was happening in a video game, like felt, you know, very important and consequential to me as a player. Like this is a storytelling that uh, was not, you know, I'm not familiar with in a game. This is cool. Yeah. And like the twist of like you learn later in the game, like, oh, there's actually a lot of falsehoods to this story. That's also really interesting. Yeah. It becomes like a Rashomon kind of thing. Or like, I guess not. I mean, like, I guess like the big part of Rashomon is like, you know, how people see themselves and uh, Cloud is like delusions that are. Right. It's not that he's lying. He's just kind of, he lied. My interpretation is that he lied to himself enough that he's kind of forgotten Mm -hmm. that he was just like Soldier B. And yeah, he's kind of yeah deluded himself and like that whole crisis that he has in act two. It's not like a narcissistic delusion, though. Like he is like it's like a it's like actual like this guy's fucked up. Like this guy like is deeply, deeply traumatized and like is coping with it through like this like specific interpretation in his head. And it's not malicious necessarily. It is just like how he is able to process this in a way that it doesn't make him become worse. And Cloud is a very interesting character and like his name and like you, you see things that like suggests like this guy isn't the most reliable narrator because he's having constant Akira headaches. <laughs> sure. Ah! Akira! Ah! 
his name is Cloud, as in right, like right. clouded judgment <laughs> or <laughs> cloudy memories, things like that. His name's a pun. The, 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 the guy that people like uphold is like the, the, the emo king of, you know, whatever is actually just like a deeply mentally ill uh, guy with a pun name. Yeah, that, that very subtle pun of his name did not occur to me when I was 16 or 17. It's a, it's, it's a clue, but it's not like something to the point where it's like, that's the, right. that's the whole reveal is because right. like the game is very archetypal, but in a way that works in service of it and is part of its subversion. And part of the thing that makes it so great is like cloud. Isn't the cool chosen one hero. He is uh, a guy who is kind of a loser. He's not a loner because he's strong. He's a loner because he's weak and doesn't want to be seen as weak he feels loneliness he is a lonely person he's sad he is not stoic and that's a very interesting angle for it. Aerith uh being the mage representation like the that she is representational of nature and is being hunted by the enemy because she is like the key to unlocking more of the nature that we need to colonize and mine and destroy and she is as close to like a normal character asterisk as mm-hmm. anybody like she talking normally like, like talking in a way that like isn't like so like Shakespearean not that this game is Shakespearean mm-hmm. as like other RPGs are but like she's like I'm spunky she's funny Aerith is a very funny character she's she's more modern than we're used to seeing mm. characters in RPGs be depicted and Tifa being like the fighter representative of, like the monk melee fighter she is very strong she's buff she's ripped yeah and in depiction she is very soft and kind-hearted and concerned and people who interpret these characters in other interpretations or of the stories, like even fucking Kingdom Hearts wrongly depict these characters uh, where like Aerith is like the soft, meek, kind of like quiet one. And then Tifa is like the strong, headstrong. You're missing the point. The point is like they, these yeah. characters, none of these characters, not even Sephiroth are who they are visually depicted as. That's fun. I don't think I'd ever like made that connection. I mean, I, I sort of, have intuited that but i never really noticed like the the sort of difference or like that juxtaposition of tifa being like a brawler with her like being the one who's kind of like the most like hey cloud do you want to talk about how you're feeling mm-hmm. it's really like being the most like empathetic character mm-hmm. um that is interesting yeah it, it, it's it's just so interesting because like I, it's, it's to the point that like i'm surprised that final fantasy 7 remake depicted Aerith and Tifa so well like Aerith is like the energy of here comes Aerith with a steel chair which she does in Final Fantasy remake yeah I'm replaying it now and I uh I'll be honest I kind of like never I didn't like really connect with Aerith that much in the original game and like was like oh I I wish I felt (laughs) sadder about (laughs) the part where she dies but like I feel like there's something about like her character I just never kind of got to know her well enough in a way but I feel like the remake does a great job of like finally felt like, oh, I get who this person is. Mm-hmm. Like she says shit early on, like when you're kind of like going across the, the roofs in Sexter 7 and like Eris yeah. like, you worry too much. I'm not some princess who needs to be coddled. Shit. And I thought Eris said shit. Holy crap. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't know that was possible. Why isn't it bleeped? <laughs> I, I sort of like put on this like this wrong idea of like is the girl that is going to try to talk me into coming to church with her. Mm-hmm. So like she's the flower girl, but she's not flowery. Uh-huh. The cast is great. Love the cast. Yeah, for sure. 
Hello, Moonshot listeners. I want to play a game. Claudia and Nicole are being held in the basement of an undisclosed abandoned building. Their task is to watch every movie in the Saw franchise before the release of Saw 10 on September 29th and provide thoughtful analysis. Your challenge is to listen to them cover two Saw films a week in their new miniseries, We See Saw, every Monday and Thursday here on the Moonshot Network. Let the game begin. Also, like the conflict is just really well represented because uh, Shinra, <laughs> an electric company, yeah, with a very unintimidating name, being like <laughs> the perpetrator of the great evil, but also not being the main villain. Yeah, yeah, that's well told. Even though, like, at its heart, that's kind of like a classic, like jrpg thing of like oh the bad guy's not actually the bad guy although i it i feel like you do a very good job early on of being like yeah shinra is real evil though still no yeah like when they're in that boardroom and they're like price hike price hike ah we're gonna leave sector seven uh the way it is because we're terrible ha 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 yeah let's drop a plate and then just destroy the slums real quick they are an actual force of evil yes and we'll blame avalanche Let's let's commit a false flag terrorist attack. Um, <laughs> God, I would love to see the forums in Midgar. <laughs> anyway, they they're they're an actual threat, but they are also not the the primary antagonists. Yeah, and even Sephiroth isn't like an S tier villain in terms of actual like dialogue characterization and everything. He's representational, and that's yeah. fucking great. Because that's the service of the story. I noticed that this time around when I played like the whole Nibelheim sequence, I actually wrote down, I was like, Sephiroth seems so normal. It was <laughs> like, oh, he's like the team leader. He just seems like very professional. He's asking about like, hey, your family lives here. You're going to visit your mom. And it's not <laughs> until like the incident that it's like, oh, this is who this dude is going to be for the rest of the game. The mother incident. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he is like, he's a foil for Cloud. Mm-hmm. And that is what is necessary to the story. Like when people hold him up as like the great villain, it's because he's got a great fucking design, A plus mm-hmm. fucking design, everybody. Right. Awesome. The great theme of one winged yeah. angel and like the boss battle, uh, a great boss battle and execution too. He's, he's hit, he hits the notes that he has to on, you know, an epic level. Yeah. But like, he doesn't have to be more than what he is. Like, but the, the, the conflict of Final Fantasy VII is we are destroying the world. The villain of Final Fantasy VII is our apathy towards the world being destroyed. Mm, sure. The reason Shinra isn't the villain of the main villain is because, like, let's extrapolate to the real world real quick because this game sure. is communicating something to us. Wait, are you saying it's metaphor for the real world? Yeah, what? <laughs> what? No, this has happened. What? <laughs> what happened? What did they do to us? <laughs> It's literally like we 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 kill the CEO of the electric company, which Seth Roth does in the game. Mm-hmm. Do the bad things stop happening? Right, no, right, right. Because like we can't wait around for something to happen, and when somebody else does something, it's not going to be enough. Immediately after the CEO is killed, they get a new guy, right? Who's a little bit worse? Yeah, 
there in you know in real life you can say like oh if we just get rid of 50 ceos all the carbon emissions will stop no number one because like we are all participants in contributing towards global warming exactly, in a way yeah. that's what we have to do is take action and we can't like be apathetic towards the fact that these things are happening and you have to take action to take care of these sort of things so if you destroy the ceo okay great here's a bad worse ceo a, a, there's always a person waiting in the wings there's always somebody in right. the world somebody that is probably like two people removed from you who would kill to be yeah, a guy yeah. who gets to be part of the, the the machine that squishes bodies into blood and turns the blood into energy yeah um and yeah, Sephiroth as a representation of like apathy as like, a, am going to destroy the world because I don't believe in anything else anymore. Right. I'm going to like destroy the world and I'm going to live the life how I want to live it. And I'm going to live in service of me. Right. It's a great representation of an idea of apathy. And it also works in service of cloud who is trying to overcome apathy it is a reflection of what he could be. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. What else? Uh, what else do you love about Final Fantasy seven? Because I'm speaking very broadly here. Another thing I like, and this is very personal to me, like I always just liked the idea of Coral Town and like that backstory with Barrett. I just thought that was like a really interesting yeah. part of the world. And like, like I, I grew up in West Virginia and like my, you know, my great grandfather was a coal miner. So like kind of seeing a sort of version, a Final Fantasy version of that represented in a game was really interesting, especially like with, you know, the history of like West Virginia with like labor movements and these coal and chemical corporations just sort of like, you know, draining the resources of the land and exploiting the people that work for them. Like that always really connected with me. And, you know, I always sympathize with Barrett in that backstory where he's like, hey, listen, like coal's done. We're we should be moving over to like this this Mako energy. Then sort of seeing, you know, years later, like what that turn into and you get to know like why Barrett cares so much about the planet and about like Avalanche that he has his personal stake in it. Especially like mm-hmm. that whole the when he finds Dine uh down in the uh, that part is like really bleak. That struck me as like the darkest part of the game. And Dine's like, hey, fuck everything. <laughs> like I wanna just kill whoever. I don't care if Marlene lives or dies. She'll just get to meet her mother sooner. Like it's like really dark. And I was really struck by that this time. <laughs> You're right. I'm talking about what I like about this game. No, no. It's like, a, oh, it's, here's this terrible, dark, awful. It's this perfect build off of that point about apathy. So like, I, I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Like characters who have like their side stories are like them trying to overcome some kind of like mental barrier to get them to really care. And like in Barrett's case, like he was obviously the instigator of we got to destroy the Mako facilities. He's the one that basically like, puts the plot into motion but you can argue that like he was doing the and i mean he says as much to the game like he was just doing the right thing for the wrong reasons with like the wrong mindset and by like seeing die now down there like going back and like confronting his past and his role within that recalibrates his like reasoning for uh, doing the things that he's going to do he's going to do this out of like a love and not much of like a self-hatred or like a doing it for the sake of like getting even or getting back or like to wash yeah, his hands of a yeah. previous thing. He's doing it because like, I got, you know, like I'm doing this out of a love for what is and what remains and not because of a shame of what was. Yeah. Yeah. If that is a sentence that remotely makes sense. To no, I, to, to me it did. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you can fix it in post if it doesn't make sense. No, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to keep <laughs> it in there. <laughs> nice. 
And then like, you know, like with Yuffie, who is a completely optional character, even though it has like a really interesting connection with the plot because the Wutai, right? Mm -hmm. That's like a whole thing. And it's barely touched on and it is completely missable. The, the, the big beats of it. I screwed up this time around. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to wait till disc three to do the Wutai sequence. And apparently you can't. Mm-mm. I didn't know that. So like I missed out on that part. And I, I could still like do the tower and like get the summon material from her from her dad. Although I was very overpowered and I <laughs> just kind of like <laughs> went in and she just like two X attacked each character and just knocked them out like that. So I was like, oh, I should have done this right as soon as I got the tiny Bronco. Mm-hmm. Like even the missable characters, like you again, missable. And it's mm-hmm. a problem. I, I, I would I would cite that as basically a flaw of the game. Like I like the idea of like there being like uh, optional uh, party members who have such rich stories to them. Yeah. In most cases, I would consider that a virtue, but an execution since they are almost so good that by making them missable, you're missing such important stuff. Yeah, and like, and same with like Vincent and his uh, wife Lucretia being like so central to like Sephiroth's story, mm-hmm. like, and that's another thing like. You just will be lucky if you go to this uh, waterfall <laughs> and <laughs> and find her hanging out there. Else, that's very missable. It's like if you miss Vincent, you miss the annotations. Of yeah, the book you're reading the, this esoteric text. <laughs> you're missing such crucial details that like we need to understand, and it's directly ties into his backstory. But yeah. like you know, him being in a coffin and like having to like dig him out of that, and him like having like the whole like cloud times 10 like emo whatever attitude about that like shaking him out of his apathy so he can give a fuck about his wife right. in a way that's constructive or um with Yuffie like her dad was like a once proud figure in a very proud uh people who were at direct conflict with the Shinra at one point and yeah. now has grown into like well what if we're the nature retreat right for right the, the people destroying the world yeah the world is going to shit. I can at least make a buck off it and keep our village yeah. alive in that way. And it's another version of like that apathy where it's like monetizing the rot, I guess. And obviously Yuffie taking issue with that as like a younger person who was regaled with stories of how good things used to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And sees things as actively bad. And instead of being like put into submission or anything like that, she's like actively trying to make her own way in life. But Again, that's not necessary. That's also naive because she's trying to do it in like a lone, in a, in a, in a loner way. And almost like yeah. the idea of her being missable almost like runs counter to that because if you don't encounter in the game at all, then like that isolation is just kind of enabled in a weird way. Whereas like if you do encounter her and make her part of your party, which is also a process if you do encounter her because you have to like do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And the, the <laughs> it's easy to miss her A. And also like it's really unclear in that that whole t- dialogue exchange with it's so easy and unclear like how to get her to join your party but the question yeah. you're supposed to ask her the push and pull mm-hmm. it's like they don't want you to to get her <laughs> they want you to miss wutai yeah it is like <laughs> it's kind of like i don't know i don't say i'm not gonna say dumb down but mm-hmm. like it's, it's kind of brilliant the way that they structure this game because when you do finally get out of the tunnel vision of midgar which is an incredible sequence and for some people it's the highlight of the game mm-hmm when you are exposed to the greater overworld and are taking in the actual colors and the greens and realizing that there is still a world to save and there's there's so much out there 
there's only one other place you can go on the map. Like, it's not like one of those places was like, oh, there's four different towns. Why don't you talk to every single person in the town? And surely one of them will give you the next objective as is mm-hmm. standard of like other RPGs. It's like, there's one other place, go to that place. And that'll right. push you to where you can go to the next. And then it'll eventually, you can backtrack. And that's where like the, the side stuff and everything. But like, you can play the story pretty linearly, if I'm being honest. Yeah, for sure. But like, that also is kind of like, you can play it almost so linearly that you can miss the stuff like Yuffie and the Wu Tai mm-hmm. stuff, which again is important to getting in a gameplay sense materia, which changes how you play the game fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, you're missing important background information for the greater world and the purpose that you're fighting for. Yeah. That's another thing I like about the game is a uh, materia system, which we haven't touched on. I think yeah. it's like a really satisfying like way to upgrade your characters, but also have it very flexible. You know, because you can very easily like slot out certain pieces, give it to other people, and you the way that it you can combine two different materia is really great way to like customize your experience. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I would say also overpower yourself very quickly, which can be very fun. Yeah, I haven't played the game in three years. Like I, I love the materia system. I remember liking it a mm-hmm. lot, and that I was like scared of it initially because like ah, extra art, extra mechanic in an RPG. Yes. Oh no, but. <laughs> It it works very well. Uh, I want to know, like, did you do anything unique in this uh, instance with Materia? Or, like, did you remember something from, like, your previous playthroughs? I always like to uh, give Cloud um, uh, the add effect Materia with uh, Transform. Meaning that, like, randomly enemies will turn into, they'll be affected with uh, Small or Frog. <laughs> but then I found out this time around that if you do that with Hades Materia, it'll be even worse. Like, so they'll get like small, uh, confuse silence, kind of like just the double, the, just a huge, like effects bomb will be like <laughs> placed on these characters. And that was always fun to me, but I, you know, my, my strategies, I like to kind of, I like to give everyone a restore materia so that everyone can heal if they, they have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely went and I, like a jerk, I went and I made a gold chocobo. I went, I got Knights of the Round. I got W Summon. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I beat Sephiroth in like five minutes, or I guess 10 minutes with how long the summons take. But <laughs> I, I took the easy route by racing my chocobos and getting that overpowered material. But the thing is, like, even though that, that material is like way too powerful, you do have to work very hard to get it. So it does feel like you are working for it and you are like working in the confines of the game to like make it work for you. Yeah. No matter what happens, if you're playing like anything longer, you're going to get stronger usually or like be better at the game in some way. So it would make sense that like the fine, like it it is like the game that you have to play with yourself. Do you, cause like also if you don't have a guide, you have no idea. Like, am I like, am I done with the game in a sense where it's like, (laughs) I can beat this final boss and I'm like, there's like, 20 more hours of like side content I haven't touched yet. And right, if right. so, I can go and beat the boss and then do the rest of that side content. Or I could do all that side content and then beat the boss, make it a clean win. That's the thing you have to wrestle with yourself as a gamer all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I had to do that recently with like Tears of the Kingdom. Like when I fight this final boss, do I want to do it so I'm not too overpowered and still have like a bunch of shrines left over? <sighs> yeah. Or do I want to do all the shrines and then do it? And then like the boss is a pushover. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of like working so that the final boss is a pushover so that i feel i feel like i've earned it at that point it feels like this was too easy but it's because i got so good <laughs> it's because i although i didn't get good i just 
I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm doing it all wrong, but. Like with all good RPGs, the final boss isn't the hardest boss in Final Fantasy VII. You have like those, the emerald and the ruby yeah, monsters that yeah. you have to fight otherwise. So there's other stuff if you want to do if like, oh, Sephiroth was a pushover. Let me go like, oh my God, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think about, like a final boss doesn't necessarily have to be controller throwing difficult. It just needs to be cinematic or yeah, yeah. deliver on like the, the themes and like the Sephiroth fight does that. The, the, the sure. final fight in Tears of the Kingdom does it. And that's what that's what it's important for at the end of the day. Yeah, I had forgotten this has a really effective ending. I don't, spoiler alert, but like, no, like, go for it. <laughs> the whole battle. But then this the very last part of the battle is like just cloud, just a stripped down Sephiroth, literally, because he's just like shirtless. And mm -hmm. the only thing, I think your only option is like your limit break Omni Slash comes up. You just do that. And that's the final, like, you know, move that you do is just like taking away all like the grand, like the angel wings and all that. The rest of the party's gone. It's just two of you in a room together with swords. You hit them once and that's it. Yeah. And that just feels like a reward to me. Mm -hmm. And let's speak to that ending real quick because I saw like a post going around a while ago where people were had different takes. It was like it was like game facts, like 2001 level discourse mm -hmm. that I was seeing on Twitter <laughs> about people arguing about like, is Final Fantasy VII one of the best endings of all time? Or is it one of the one of those like disappointing endings that mm -hmm. you didn't get? Because it's it, it doesn't like spell out. It doesn't have like one of those endings where it's like a the Goodfellas ending or anything like that, mm -hmm. where it like this person would go on to do this at this exact <laughs> sure. date and time It lived a happy life or anything like that. Because like after that Omni slash, and like you said, it's literally down to you mm -hmm. and Sephiroth. It's like, okay, well ha what happened to my party after we won? Yeah, yeah. What happened? What happened? Where did they go? Like, it doesn't like have like a long conversation with your party about like, we did it guys. We won. Let's all go and do something. And then it cuts the credits and then you see Barrett reunite with his daughter and Tifa yeah. go back to the bar or anything like that because again earth has fundamentally or gaia has fundamentally changed and i guess i just i want your take on like the ending and how you choose to interpret I, it's it's yeah yeah it's weird like i had forgotten a lot of the ending until seeing it recently I, there are parts of it i like and parts of that i don't like to me i feel like there's a lot of business it, it seems like there's a lot of business about like getting out of the the crater that seemed a little like I, I kind of didn't need all all of this. Like, I kind of wanted this feels like padding a little bit perfunctory, you'd say. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, at least to my ear, it was kind of like some of the weakest like use of music in the game. There's this term called like Mickey Mousing, where it's like if the music is like too like on the nose about like every twist and turn. And I feel like it kind of does that. It'd be like, oh, the airship's turning this way. So all the flutes and strings are going to go blah, 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 and hit like a big discordant chord 
Ford all mm-hmm. then hits a happy chord to let you know it's all right. It kind of felt like, oh, they're spelling out a little too much of this, and I'm not even sure why we're here. But like the sort of ending, ending, like where it's like 500 years later and you see possibly Red 13, possibly his descendants, like, and like a moss overgrown Midgar. I, I, I'm okay with that. I thought that was a version of a good ending. And to me, it doesn't, my interpretation wasn't that like, oh, humanity's done for. It was more like Midgar is done for, perhaps. And like humans have sort of moved on from Mako and we're seeing like a green verdant world that is like in recovery or is recovered from the life stream being damaged. Right. Yeah. I think the ending is like, okay, Holy is ultimately summoned and they do destroy the meteor and then like some rigmarole happens and then like, you know, cut the credits. And then like, I, I do very distinctly remember like, you know, it is 500 years later. Oh, and that's post credits, isn't it? Yeah, it is post credits. Yeah. Oh, and there's that, you just see like Aerith's face for just like a split second, right before it like cuts to black. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You, you hear children laughing and like the, ending. Oh, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like life, life went on. It's not like... I don't think this is like an ideological like test whether or not you like the the ending of Final Fantasy VII. I'm not going to like reduce it to that. Yeah. But like when you see a city overgrown, mm-hmm. do you inherently see that as like humanity is gone? Because that's not necessarily true. Yeah. <laughs> Video games have made me told taught me to think like oh something bad's happened here. Uh, I think Last of Us <laughs> when I think of like overgrown cities. But I think in that case, especially with like, like you talk about the children laughing cue, I think, and who knows, maybe they added that because they had to, <laughs> to like make you kind of push you away from that idea. But like, to me, that does say like, oh, this is a happy ending. Yeah. I feel bad. I can't remember Red 13's real name right now, but like that, I think that Manakee? might go into like, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because I feel terrible calling him Red 13 because that's like, that's his slave name or whatever. <laughs> right. But I, I it's a I think it's another like minor issue I have with the game where it's like I can't change his name when he accepts his real name or whatever. Oh, is that true? It won't let you. Yeah, like you, you when you when you first joined your party, it's like what's my name, and then like it's already filled out to Red Thirteen, and yeah. then, like you don't find out like his real name until after the fact, and it's like oh shit, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I have I promise when I remember to replay yeah, this yeah. game, I'll call you that. <laughs> that's very but good like point. yeah i can't it's not in like the front of my mind anymore that like yeah. what his real name is because it's like you're still fucking red 13 man i'm sorry yeah we we, we we'll, we'll get you a new collar i'm not not a collar i'm sorry i'm sorry you're not a slave i'm sorry yeah it seems like that would be nice to like give you the option to like change his name like after like that sequence in like cosmic canyon i would love that too because like it would also lead to an extremely funny moment for the player where it's like you can rename the player and it's auto fill to that. And you're like, back, 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 poop or Taco Bell or whatever you're doing, like the gimmick for. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Taco Bell is really good. That's a very, yeah. yeah, I can't wait to call Red 13 Taco Bell next time I play the game. But yeah, no, I think the ending is a positive one. But since it doesn't show uh, Cloud getting married to Barrett or Tifa or something like that, yeah. it is open ended in a way that Final Fantasy games traditionally have been and continue to be to a point. But like, I, yeah, I think Final Fantasy VII is like a, a, a good ending, especially like the bow at the end with seeing the family and the children laughing and like an yeah. overgrown monument, a, a monument to the folly of man returning to nature. Yeah, it's I think it's probably important to leave it there as a, a symbol. Yeah, we've praised this game. I love the gameplay. I <laughs> love the narrative and like, it actually trying to say something and mm-hmm. how it uh, 
depicts characters that we have sort of seen before, but in a new kind of way. What is it that you wish this game did better? Um, I mean, I think we touched on this earlier, but there are a lot of mini games. Yeah, it does seem kind of silly at some point, especially because some of them feel so inconsequential. It just feels like busy work and some of them take a long time, like the one where you have to like give CPR to that girl Priscilla. And it's also I don't think that's how CPR actually works, where you just take the biggest breath possible. You fill your air, your lungs with as much air and then just blast it all (laughs) into the person in need of care. There's kind of that stuff. Even replaying it was like there's still like a a charm with how dumb it is. There's a swing. It's definitely a swing. Yeah, I like the bold swings. Like, I I don't necessarily think like, oh, these sequences should be cut entirely because they Mm -hmm. serve a narrative purpose and often take us from point A to point B. And uh, unfortunately, the snowboarding isn't fun. Yeah. Oh, the snowboarding's so weird because it's like you don't get a practice run and it's so hard. It's so hard to like execute it well. But at the same time, it doesn't matter. Like you can keep eating shit left and right, like on the snowboard. You know, you can't game over during that section. It's like the arcade sensibility of like, all right, here are the instructions go. And then you're like, what? And then like, I'm going to fail. And then you're going to get my quarter again. Yeah. It's like, I already paid $70 for the game. (laughs) You won. (laughs) I'm playing the game. Why? And it's kind (laughs) of like, well, we can't make the sequence long because like, that would take up too much time. And it's like, but we also had to create a new gameplay system and we want you to yeah. keep playing and learn the system enough to like, and this will never come up again, by the way. What? Yeah. Um, I will. I do like the motorcycle. Oh, the motorcycle. That is, that is a fun one. The music in the motorcycle thing is really memorable too. And it's also like the, it's sort of like your, like, you know, the sequence that like ends the Midgar sequence, which is kind of fun. Yeah, I like them as like cinematic set pieces that you can participate in. It's kind of like one of those things yeah. where it's like, <laughs> like we, we complain about quick time events, right? Mm. But like back then we didn't even have that. Yeah. So it's like, I understand what this game is doing because it's like we're a blockbuster video game. We are fully in the mindset of like passion based development. Like mm-hmm. at this point, we are no longer in the sense of like, we, we are making a game to save the company. We're making a game to make the company greater. Sure, sure. And it's like, we can't just make an RPG. We have to break these sequences up with new gameplay things to keep the player engaged, Mm -hmm. to make this game feel bigger and more monumental. How can we do that? And I just see, like, I'm just thinking of, like, some guy being, like, a submarine? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's so many modes of transportation. It's still funny to me that there's a a boat that is basically just a broken plane. Yeah. (laughs) It's so silly. Like, I kind of love that because it's like, it makes the game feel bigger that you have so many mo- modes of transportation that are so context specific. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I also hate that submarine sequence with a passion. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so weird. I mean, I, I kind of don't mind like later when you can just kind of chill in the submarine and like find the key of the ancients and all that and avoid <laughs> the terrible emerald weapon down there. But yeah, that sequence of like avoiding the mines, somehow I was able to cruise through it this time pretty easily but i remember thinking like what's going on here why am i doing this mm-hmm. why is it so slow why can't i just have a battle oh you know what else the fort condor battle it's just the worst and i spent like all of my money like trying to like get all the pieces and like having a strong little army and this still wasn't enough 
the only thing you get from not like losing the Fort Condor battle is you don't have to like do the boss fight. And then I did the boss fight and it's pretty easy. So I'm like, oh, I could have yeah. just like lost and not spent, you know, <laughs> 30,000 gil on an army that's just going to get decimated. Let's talk about Fort Condor because I have, I have notes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I see those kinds of like side games, right? I think immediately, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I love a div- I love these kinds of like diversions. Gwent. G- yeah, your Gwent's triple triad even. Horizon Forbidden West had a really good one too. Yeah, but like some sort of like rudimentary but like just engaging enough that like you can like glorified mobile game bullshit. Like the Chocobo stuff is good, right? Yeah. Or I mean, actually famously like a triple triad in Final Fantasy yeah. 8. Is exactly. a great card game. Triple triad is great if you figure out how to like and not not do the random rule. Um, like you know the Chocobo racing stuff in this game yeah, is like yeah. so good they made it a whole franchise. Yeah, but like I thought like okay hell yeah Fort Condor this is the first mini game that we're really running into after the the bike section. Mm-hmm. What do you got? What is this like strategy game? I love this shit. What is this? what? Why is this bad? Am I playing it wrong? Why am I? Why is this not good? I thought it was my fault the first time yeah. I did it. Because, and it's pay to win. Yeah. This gotcha game bullshit. Right. Square. <laughs> Whoever did that minigame specifically is the guy that's like getting the crypto. <laughs> right. NFTs is the way to go. <laughs> it's a tragedy. I was I was so mad. Like I was like, this is up, up to that point. I was like, I see why this is like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> this I, is the greatest game of why is this here? <laughs> yeah, that made me sad. I feel like that's just kind of like the square nft thing seems to have like maybe died down maybe that's just a thing of the past i think it has a little bit yeah. like I, i'm sure they'll find a new griff to fall for yeah but um that that specific thing is gone i wish the griff they would fall for is turn-based combat mm-hmm. yeah um i'm interested to see if they try and even do fort condor in uh final fantasy 7 well, rebirth is did you play the the yuffie uh dlc I haven't played Integrate yet. No. Integrate. Well, basically, they do have a, a Fort Condor. Like, it's like a very popular like board game in the world, and it's mm. actually really good. So I think you'll like okay. it. Hell, I was like, yeah. okay, this actually feels like a good game now. I'm gonna boot it up right now. <laughs> yeah, it's great, and you you get to it really quickly too. Like, good. You, um, you get through the opening section, and you're like, here's a town. And someone's like, hey, you got a board. I needed that. I needed that reassurance that something <laughs> yeah. good came out of this. Otherwise, like yeah. the consequences, I get to play the game normally. That's a reward. <laughs> <laughs> a boss fight. That's why I love video games. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, um, in terms of um, things I wish the game did better, like outside of like the mini game stuff, like some of the platforming stuff is a little weird. Oh, yeah, it's a little hinky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and slow. Uh, I see why they like put in like the 3x speed option. Yeah, uh, yeah, the future editions of the game because like it takes quite a few seconds to go from yeah. like one ledge to another cloud. Oh, and that reminds me, uh, the a thing that's so weird about this game is like the orientation of the control is like very context sensitive, or like mm. all the interiors are. You know, it's not just always north, south, east, west with the with the D pad, yeah. or even the analog stick. Like you really have to like orient your brain to like okay they kind of want me to like think of this as north so i have to angle in this direction it's always a little unintuitive to me 
Yeah, that's the PlayStation one though. That's the yeah. it's borderline Resident Evil tank controls where like <laughs> that's true. All right, we're pressing up and now we're going up. Okay, camera angle has changed, but I have not let go of the button, so the character is still moving in a direction. Oh, hold on, there's something to the left. I'm moving to the left. Now let me press up again. Oh, I'm going backwards now. <laughs> yeah, they're still figuring him out. I accept that as like, you know, pre 3D fully realized worlds. Yeah, like, cause you're, yeah. you're, 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 it's 3D in a sense, you're a 3D model on a 2D background. Right, We're not right, there yet. Right. So I accept that. Um, but man, does it never get better? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not a thing. It's, you never get used to it as a thing. Cause every, every two dimensional background is like a little bit different. Yeah. Like, I accept that, like, these are games that simply do not get made anymore. And yeah. the 2D background stuff is really cool and smart in the in the sensibility of the time so i accept that yeah but unfortunately it is still frustrating to control for <laughs> sure for sure yeah but like if the problem with the game is like you know the mini games to just like a company got too ambitious and tried to mix it up a little bit i mean that's a that's a great sequence i do have two notes and it's kind of like stuff i want to talk with you because it's kind of like elephant in the room shit with final fantasy sure, VII. sure we talked earlier about how Barrett is like the first black character in the game, yeah, obviously yeah. not qualified to speak on the nuances of like depiction and all that in terms of like representational, yeah. but like it is, there I, is like I've a very, on my list too. <laughs> I, I see where you're going, but we can at least like very obviously like notice that this is not a fully in positive depiction of a, of a black character in a true, video game, true. especially in the localization, which throws in cuss words where they don't belong. And he is designed on a very visual level to look like Mr. T. Yeah, for sure. Even back in the 90s, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way of like, oh, this this doesn't feel good to my ears. It feels like like certain patterns of his speech feel like they're just modern or modeled after like stereotypes that yeah. better a little uncomfortable today as well as 20 years ago. Oh, there's plenty of like casual sexism in the game, which is upsetting. Just like in terms of like characters being like, but, but you're a girl, you can't go on this mission, that kind of thing. Oh, and also, I mean, Sid is just terrible to his like partner, uh, Shira. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> similarly, like, you know, when I played the game in 1997, I was like, this doesn't feel okay. <laughs> and I play it now, I'm like, oh, this really doesn't feel okay. He's really terrible to her. That's something I completely forgot about because, yeah. uh, like I was in denial about it a little bit where it's like, surely this is going to turn around in like some way where like Sid really reckons with his behavior here because he's a good guy in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> but it's true. And I feel like they, they, they try to story wise be like, no, it's okay because uh, he's like this because she ruined the rocket mission. And it's like, actually, that I don't think that does make it okay. Square. It's weird because like almost none of the other characters that I can recall ever take out their failures on other people even if the failure isn't their fault and it's strange for like a late game character like sid who i guess you're supposed to be endeared to by the end of his arc yeah and i guess it's just kind of because like he's the quote-unquote normal man at the end then the perception of the developers of the game Mm -hmm. kind of becomes like closest thing to a leader because he has the car or whatever (laughs) (laughs) to get around when like barrett was the leader already because there's that, that sequence of the game where Cloud's out of commission, Tifa stays behind to take care of him, and he has to go through like his like acceptance arc, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then like you go off, and it's the rest of your party, which is I think a good sequence. I think it's good that like these things happen, but like it's weird that like sort of change it up. Sid is like kind of like assumed to be yeah, like oh this is the older white man, so clearly 
<laughs> he's going to be the our leader for the time being. Yeah, which again, Barrett is has been established as leader, and that's the thing yeah. that like I try to reconcile again, and it's weird too as a white man try and defend any aspect of a stereotype, but it's I I feel this way about Aerith in terms of like how she's represented, and I feel this way about Barrett where it's like it's a problematic presentation of really good stuff. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Like, because he still is a great character. Like, Barrett is still like a really well-rounded character mm-hmm. with some bad localization issues. Bad localization issues. Like, I understand probably like the intention was like big black character with a gun for a hand. You're going to assume is like this, but in reality, they're a good man who is a kind father and has much more going on behind him besides mm-hmm. like what your initial impression of him is. However, that doesn't give the stereotyping of it an excuse where you could have like depicted the black man as looking like anything else. And sure. I don't know. It, it does feel like it's leaning into some of these stereotypes and it feels lazy from a creation of storytelling point of view. Yeah. Especially since like the character designs are not we're at, we're at the point where like you can't claim like, Oh, the graphics were like this. So we had to exaggerate certain features because like this game has three different art styles or yes. possibly more. Yeah. <laughs> There's the the Playmobil kind of almost Astro Boy looking overworld characters. Yeah. And then like you have the more detailed like battle fighter sequences. And then um, you have their actual representations mm-hmm. on like the icons. So it's like weird that like Barrett gets to like bear the most negative parts of that as the one black character and the True. first black character in this franchise. Yeah. But again, like the, the, the side story with him and like the more complex parts of him are compelling. Yeah, for sure. Again, I know it was a game of subversions, but you they leaned too hard into one particular characters. And I feel the same about Aerith again. Like um the problem with the Aerith death thing. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where it's like I understand what Aerith represents as like nature and innocence, but and like also the contradictory of that, like of her being like a fully lived girl who was more than just like the representation of innocence. She was a woman who had complexities to her. Mm-hmm. She was a very individual character, and that makes the death more tragic. But mm-hmm. it also like it's 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 it, it's it's a strange relationship to have with it because you see how it's good, and you also see how it's very very bad mm-hmm. for that to happen to a character in service of story. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm yeah. also not qualified to speak on sexism. No, I get that. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's also if we're if we're talking about this stuff, it's kind of hard to like also not. There's like some weird like just subtle homophobia kind of like i wouldn't call it subtle (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) with like i mean some parts of like like the wall wall market sequence with like cloud like having to like put on the dress some of that is like very cool and it feels like yeah this is kind of like not a big deal and it's kind of like rad that he's just gonna he's going for it but like I feel like every time there's like a the the bodybuilder men <laughs> characters in this game, whether they're in like that gym or like in the honeybee in, it feels like they are just very like a stereotypical like I don't even know how to describe it. Like I said, I feel hmm, this is wrong. And I'm not sure if I can describe why. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing that the remake fixes almost. Yeah, it's entirely. great in the re- remake. Cloud, All those sequences are Cloud fantastic. Cloud looks amazing. <laughs> when he, it's, it's such a, yeah. yeah. What, like that whole dance sequence. Oh, yeah, that actually leans into like a new minigame in the remake when he has to like dance in his dress. It's so good. 
it's really good and it's it's the best case scenario in terms of handling like a problematic aspect of something yeah, that is yeah. like deeply deeply 90s homophobia right but like it is so it was such a regressive thing of the 90s thing that immediately dated it yeah yeah it was hack then in the 90s it was mm-hmm. hack in the 90s at that point <laughs> sure. and like it was it like i'm so glad that they moved away from it miraculously in the 2020 remake i say miraculously because it's video games um you're right oh yeah i was i did not have high hopes i was like oh god what are they gonna do <laughs> wait a minute <gasps> cloud is that you oh my god that makeup and that dress nailed it i know thank you moving on they they accepted it uh obviously like took to heart what people had issues with and made it into a very transformative thing in a way mm-hmm. that like i am genuinely surprised by yeah and again i think that like again like with the era thing i understand like because another thing is twin peaks was a huge influence on this game's development mm. sonically you can hear it in a uh nobu uematsu's score like there's so many motifs especially in um the the early tracks of the game that sounds so twin peaksy it's very uh battle in its score and it's so good it's so good and i can understand like Aerith, because Aerith does serve like the same thematic purpose that Laura Palmer yeah, serves sure. in Twin Peaks. But I think the way that Twin Peaks is able to move away from that is like Laura Palmer dies in the beginning and that's the inciting incident. Right. And like you work your way backwards into like filling in the humanity of this person. And it, like that's how the tragedy is like spelled out for you and like mm-hmm. what who this person was and what they represented versus who they were. Because uh, like Aerith is also not a fully innocent woman in terms of like, and not to say like Laura Palmer is guilty or deserved to die or anything mm-hmm. like that. I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like this character deserved to live because they were a human, not because they meant something to you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's just a complicated thing with Aerith because like the game does so well with the character for the most part up until a certain point and then like has to like serve different purpose for the story in a way that like I'm just, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's something I've been reckoning with since I played the game because I understand like I think a part of that's the reputation of the game where people like took that as like the grand big plot twist where I think the grand big plot twist is actually the the Sephiroth and Cloud uh, how how Cloud really was as a kid and how he was uh, with that uh, scene where Sephiroth was presumed dead. I think that's supposed to be the big twist. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And yeah, I think that's the thing I like. (laughs) <laughs> at least for me like emotionally resonates more and is more interesting to me yeah because another thing is like is Aerith really dead in like the narrative because like she's a part of the earth and part of this like tribe and like mm-hmm. again she's the last of her kind in a modern version of an ancient yeah. tribe and like the push and pull with all that i don't i would have liked to see more yeah for sure for sure i guess and i was also thinking at some point i, I should do like you know there is like like a way you can play this game like the original with like a game shark code i i guess they had coded like a version of the game with Aerith like living so there is like dialogue that exists in the game of her later in the game uh, which I've, i haven't really researched too much of that to know exactly what she says or how she fits into the story but still interesting yeah it is like having taking three central characters off of the board around the same time because tifa is taking care of cloud who's had a mental breakdown because of the the truth of the things that were revealed to him and an Aerith being taken out of commission because she died it just doesn't feel like it's an even distribution of why these characters are taken out i guess yeah yeah for sure i think that's the fundamental issue with it is like one character is treated as collateral in service of these other two characters yeah that's a really good point but 
Aerith had the weight of a lot of stuff put on her. And that's another thing that makes it difficult to talk about these things in a way that's so definitive. Yeah, yeah. What else do you have? Do you have anything else to say in good or bad, negative, mixed on a... The only other negative I had, and I mean, this is this is a quick one, I think, is just that it's really, I mean, I mean, I guess it can be a strength and a weakness is that there are no character classes. So basically, every character is the same. You're really just, if you're going just on numbers, it's really like, what limit break do you think is most powerful? But in some ways that can be like, kind of a bonus because you can really customize your party based on the characters you like which is kind of what I do like I just tend to like having my main character I mean this is probably basic but like just Cloud, Barrett, and Tifa are my favorite like crew mm-hmm. so you know I can just roll with them and adjust the materia accordingly and then like when there's a sort of reason where I have to use other characters I can just like give them the material that I've been like, you know, building up with those characters. Yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah. yeah like replacing class with materia, like makes a good shorthand for people who are likely coming into this game, not having played another final fantasy game or just an RPG in general. Yeah, that's true. So it was a, it was a very good execution of that. Yeah. So I wrote it down as a negative, And as I started talking, I'm like, actually, <laughs> this is probably fine. <laughs> I, 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 I think you're hitting a point though, where it's like you as like a more, seasoned fan <laughs> sure would have liked more I like a version of this game that appealed to or like some form of mode that would have mm-hmm. like made it so you would be able to be more engaged with mechanics because like people treat rpgs as like glorified menus well i i think also like you know a couple years ago i played persona 5 like front to back and i think that really like showed me how well like a turn-based combat system can be like mm-hmm. that feels so finely tuned and like every character feels important in a and has a unique role to play you really have to be mindful about who's in your party depending on what section of the game you're in that is very satisfying in a way that like you know you you're not going to get from final fantasy 7 because like kind of anybody can do whatever you need them to do yeah that's fair so we've talked about the good about this game, the very good, the, the, the stuff that isn't so good, the, the complicated stuff. Looking over everything holistically, what impact would you say that this game made on you overall? Oh, uh, let's see. I mean, like I talked about this a little bit, but like this came to me at a time when I was sort of like not that invested in video games. And so when this appeared on my radar again, it really like kind of brought me back into the fold and showed me, you know, what's capable in video game storytelling and setting, you know, also in 1997 showed me like a trajectory of like what this medium is capable of and what I would have to look forward to. And, you know, some, you know, cause following year I was playing Metal Gear Solid and seeing like another cinematic story told uh, with polygons. Yeah. And other, you know, Silent Hill too was a big deal for me around the same time. It felt like video games were growing up with me and like, this wasn't a hobby that I had to leave with my childhood. Very well said. Thank you. Would you say like it's informed your taste in games in the years since or any sort of media that you seek out? Yeah. I mean, like there's like I mentioned, I really like a cozy slum <laughs> video game. That's something that like recently uh, um, appealed to me was like, hmm, let's see, it's a Netflix show, but I didn't work on it. Am I allowed to talk about it? Yeah, because I didn't work on it. So um, like Arcane on Netflix, like really gripped me like 
Uh, and I think part of that for me was the setting. Have you seen it? I, I've, I've, it's been on my list forever because yeah. it came up in the Mass Effect episode that I did. Oh, right. Um, yeah. And like, I've never played League of Legends, so I don't have any, you know, worse <laughs> in that race. But like, similar, it's actually very similar to Midgar, where it's like there are slums underground and like above them is like the, the, uh, the elite upper class people. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of got a very similar like lighting scheme where it's, it's kind of dark and dingy with like a lot of green lighting. Uh, very 90s feel in a way and with like really cool interesting characters so i feel like there's a lot of final fantasy 7 dna in that that i just kind of happened upon yeah it's weird i watched like the first episode of that when it first came out and i was like oh this is great i gotta keep watching and i stopped and i didn't finish it until like maybe a week or two ago and Mm -hmm. i was like oh i'm so glad i finally like got back in this and it really it takes some big like swings like like three or four episodes in that i did not see coming and were very satisfying so mm-hmm. go watch arcane i think it's great and especially if you yeah. like final fantasy 7 but i think also like if you have fallen off of like rpgs um you know because like of the sort of like you know square going away from turn-based combat in these games like persona 5 was something that really resonated with me both setting wise and like gameplay wise but also chained echoes which came out last year feels like it has a lot of final fantasy 6 dna in it Oh, okay. Like Persona, like very well thought out turn-based combat. Oh gosh, uh, like Octopath Traveler 2 is also really like another example of like, well, this is a direction that like Final Fantasy could have gone in if they had mm. stuck with uh, turn-based. Yeah. But yeah. Any other like sort of media that you would like shout out as like something like that we haven't mentioned like in the core discussion that would uh, relate to this while we're on the subject? I think those are the ones. <laughs> I think that's all. Okay. Uh, I have one. Um, I, I normally have like a million things that's like, well, if you like this, like this reminds me of this. And you, yeah, but like I, I really only have one for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched this movie literally yesterday instead of Advent Children. <laughs> um, well, it's uh, called uh, Metropolis, uh, not the Fritz Lang film. It's a 2001 anime film based on a manga by the creator of Astro Boy, uh, As- Asamu Tezuka. Uh, it's a movie directed by uh, Rintaro, produced by Madhouse, and uh, the screenplay is by Katsuhiro Otomo, who is the creator of Akira, the, both the manga and the director of the film, Akira. Oh, cool. So it's basically like an all-star sort of uh, anime film. So many different like major forces in the creative industry all working together to make this thing. Uh, it was obviously produced well after the death of... Um, the Astro Boy creator, but it is distinctly in his art style. Mm-hmm. And it's not a direct adaptation of the Fritz Lang 1927 film Metropolis. It has the same name, but in a lot of the same thematic ideas, visual cues, themes, mm. it's very influenced by it. But it's not a you know animated adaptation of that film necessarily. Uh, but because it's animated in Tezuka's art style, which you can sort of visualize in your head if you're familiar with Astro Boy, the characters are very much proportioned like the uh, overworld models for the Final Fantasy VII characters. And since it's a story about like a futuristic city with a vibrant looking upper level and uh, the, the underclass underneath it all oppressed because of the, the illusions, the, 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 the necessary like processes of what we do to maintain the illusion of the top upper level. Mm-hmm. It's very in theme with Final Fantasy VII. Like those slums look almost like directly as they would in final fantasy oh, 7 so i checked that check out. out sounds awesome yeah so metropolis is very uh, good while we're still on the subject of final fantasy 7 
you're a musician. You said this is your favorite Final Fantasy soundtrack, and、uh, you know Uematsu is like your one of your core influences. Do you have a favorite track from this game? Yeah, I mean, I, I know this is probably a basic answer, but it's that overworld theme. It's just so good. I can't believe it's like seven minutes long, too. I mean, like that core, that's great too. I like that it highlights the seventh scale degree, and this is the seventh game in the series. That's cool. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I also love like the. It takes a lot of weird directions. There's that kind of later section where it's like, -na 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 -na, and it feels like it's really kind of plotting and like mysterious、um, in a way that it. Didn't have to, and I think it's really cool. It's, it's has all these very interesting chord changes、um, that are just really—they're just very unexpected and unusual. And I know that was something for me that I like really wanted to like study, so I could learn like what are these like chord relationships? How do I recreate this in my own work? But、uh, aside from that, like all the main themes are just great. Like Eris, the scene, Eris. <clears throat> Eris, how do you how would you say that? Eris's theme is、uh, <laughs> is just lovely, and the arrangement's really lovely. Tifa's theme is great too, but even some of the like、uh, non main tracks are really well done and like iconic to me. Like that first one called Anxiety is what the track's name is, and it just has these like interesting chord changes where it's just those strings. That are kind of going. To me, that is just like what, like Sector Seven sounds like. Even that goofy、uh, Don Corneo music is really just memorable to me. With that ba ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da, that just really is always like stuck with me. <laughs> so like. But I think more importantly than that, I think this game really uses those themes well, like not just in their main iterations, but like in little reprises. In you know, there are bits of Eris's theme in like that. I think the track is called like、uh, the 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 flower in the church or something like that. And when the ba da 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 da, but then it plays Eris's theme over top of that. 
Um, that's really lovely. And just there's so many iterations of that overworld theme. Ba-da-da-da-da. Even in like minor keys in sort of like over weird different chords to kind of create different uh, vibes of like unease or even happiness like when it needs to it's it's such like a good like simple theme it's recognizable so it's easily like transposable to like other situations in a way that feels like very cinematic to me and very like musical theater to me in a way just having a strong melody and knowing how to like manipulate it to uh to suit the atmosphere and i i almost like was planning on like doing like what if i do some like music like theory stuff in this discussion but then i yeah. i found a podcast that does it i mean there are like hundreds of like youtube like dissections of the music of final fantasy 7 but again um have you heard of strong songs yes yeah which is uh triple clicks kirk hamilton's his music podcast and he uh so he does a breakdown of the music of final fantasy 7 where he kind of like and i only found this recently i was like oh this is kind of exactly what i would have talked to but he just did a much better job than i would have where he does okay. break down how that theme works and how it's built and how it's used and also how it's used in the the remake too in ways that are like it's really interesting to me as someone that like understands music theory really well but i think he does a good way of explaining it to someone where you don't need to have like a music background to appreciate it right so, a layman's ground yeah 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 he's really good at that that's good yeah um yeah, like uh, really speaking very quickly to the music, you, you're very thorough and very thoughtful, and like you being able to like put that into like, you know, the language of music in a way that really highlights how uh, good and complex these tracks are is chef's kiss. Great, ah, thank, thank you. Because <laughs> I was like, my nose was like, I like uh, anxiety because it sounds like the the, the Twin Peaks music, and uh, <laughs> um, which is true. Uh, but like uh, that'll probably market. connect to your listeners more than what I said. <laughs> People play music and listen to music That's all true. the time. I would say, yeah, I, I love that. I mean, like I have a high schooler's understanding of music because I only did band through high school, but <laughs> what, was, what <laughs> instrument did you play? Clarinet. Oh, great. Cool. Yeah. I don't know how to play that one. Yeah. And then like, I, I was like way more into drama though. So like, that's the oh, stuff I, I really bothered to like really learn the language of. Cool. Cool. But yeah, no, I also really, and observant listeners will know i really like the wall market theme oh that, yeah like, heavy bass dun, 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 dun. yeah there's some reason that just like is like the one that like really scratches at my brain because i'm a huge huge fan of the bass like it's why i like really latch on the bands like pixies and talking heads is oh, because sure, like sure. they're so bass heavy cool cool um so yeah that i always think about the wall market theme and i was thrilled when it showed up as like a weird remixed battle theme in final fantasy 7 remix oh yeah, remake. yeah yeah i was i was happy with that But yeah, that is everything I have to say about Final Fantasy VII. Would you like to stick around while I read these uh, reader comments? Oh, please. Or listener comments. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Reading a podcast. What is this? (laughs) I asked listeners what their feelings were on Final Fantasy VII. And unsurprisingly, this is the most feedback I've ever gotten uh, doing this segment. 
So I have a few that stand out to me. At Lallysup said, favorite game and changed my life. Mm. Quick story. Uh, when I got out of rehab for opioids and was kind of directionless and didn't know what to do, I booted up a new save and played through while in a sober house. A cathartic experience of returning to my first love of video games, which I thought was a lovely message. Thank you for writing that. In. That's beautiful. Yeah. At Will Myers Music, uh, on more recent replays, I've realized how much of Cloud's identity crisis can be read through a gender lens. And that makes the game and his character way more compelling to me. Smiley face. Oh, wow. Another, another lovely comment. Really appreciate that one. At cron.com, the economy of FF7 storytelling, textual and visual, still astounds me. The Midgar section communicates so much in a small amount of time, and then the map opens up and you realize your understanding of the game's world is still so blinkered. It's amazing. Mm. Lovely comment. Uh, and at Jane Altoids, who was my guest on the Tekken 2 episode, uh, she said, its message of environmentalism in the face of a planet-destroying corporation that runs the world has made the story Hold up very well. Correct. <laughs> For sure. When yeah. it's more prescient uh, day by day. Listen, uh, it was really awesome to have you on the show, uh, Mike. You have been such a wonderful and awesome guest. Before you go, please promote the hell out of yourself. Hey, thanks, man. Um, yeah, it has been a pleasure being on here. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, when I reached out about writing a theme song, not telling <laughs> me to fuck off. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but here, uh, your listeners can find me at mypetry.com. That's P-E-T-T-R-Y, two T's. And that's kind of like the hub for anything I'm doing, or you can find like links to music and social media there. Basically, I'm at Mike Petri on Twitter, which I'm not going to call it X at that. <laughs> uh, Instagram, Blue Sky, and Threads. I don't know which one of those I'm committing to yet. We're all still figuring it out. Um mm-hmm. I host truly a the, <laughs> truly the like Tifa or Aerith or Barrett <laughs> of, the, of the of the modern age. <laughs> exactly. Who did you go on a date with at the uh, Golden Saucer segment, which uh, we never brought up at one point at all? Uh, Tifa, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's usually just kind of always nudge me towards Tifa, just because I have better interactions with her. Okay. Sorry, continue. Oh, sure. Uh, I also uh, I host a podcast called Bit Parade. We released very sparsely um and that's a podcast where me and my co-host eli bolin uh play old video games and we write songs about them in real time but then also drop and like a fully realized demo of the song at the end of every episode Mm -hmm. and if that sounds boring except for the song part you can just find the songs on spotify just follow eli bolin or me or look up at parade um and also my music's on soundcloud bandcamp and if you go to YouTube, you'll find two uh, sort of like uh, chill hop uh, study music versions of of uh, Eris's theme and Tiva's theme. Uh, hmm. And what else? I'll, I'll try to wrap it up. I promise. I just do so much stuff. You're um, good. You can also play Epic Dumpster Bear 1 and 2 and Jank Brain uh, on uh, Steam or switch and uh ps4 those are games i write music for and uh i'm thinking about going back to twitch at some point i don't know i have this terrible idea that maybe i'll like play all the souls games which i'm no good at (laughs) because i enjoyed Elden ring so maybe i can embarrass myself publicly by playing dark souls i don't know we'll see (laughs) but that's it i think yeah i mean that's great 
obviously I'll keep put the link of everything in the description of this episode because I always have the link of your stuff in the description of this episode because you wrote a wonderful theme song hey, for this show. Thank you. And thank you for writing that theme song. Thank you once again for being such an awesome guest. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm your host, editor, and promoter keeper. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have any thoughts about Final Fantasy VII or any other games we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. That's on patreon.com slash Corner. You can find the link to that and the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more on moonshotpods.com. The art for the show was made by my best friend Avery Ott, and the show's theme song was composed by Mike Petri. You can check out the links in the description for their work. And Mike's right here, so say hi. Hi. <laughs> All right. I think that's it. All right, everybody. Let's mosey. I'm curious about that. I've always been curious about like to know more. I'm not. <laughs> And sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry, Zach fans. He just seems like a war criminal. <laughs>